Hello, my name is Dave Gonzalez, and I haven't read any of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And I'm Neil Miller, and I have also read all of those books. We are headed back to Westeros to cover the Game of Thrones spinoff series, House of the Dragon. We'll be answering your questions, so send us a raven at trialbycontent at gmail.com. Take some bread and salt and join us Thursdays on the Trial by Content feed, and don't worry, you're safe. The Reigns of Castamere hasn't even been written yet. I sought that vision again, night after night. But it never came again. I poured all my thought and will into it. My obsession killed Rhaenyra's mother. Viserys. I thought Rhaenyra was the way out of my abyss of grief and regret. But naming her heir would begin to set things right. Oh, it did. I never imagined I would remarry. That I would have a son. What if I was wrong? And welcome into the Ringerverse here on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, and it is my absolute pleasure to invite you not only to the Kingswood, but also to join us on the Ringer's Nexus podcast feed for all things fandom. Joining me today, now that she's finished telling me she doesn't have a dragon pit, of course, but she does have the means and resources to build one, it's my house of our working title. Co-host Joanna Robinson. Molly Rubin, I fear the gods do not make me for hunting. Might I sit with you and podcast a while? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Here, have some cookies <laughs> to nibble on while oh, yeah. we chat. <laughs> <laughs> we are, of course, here to dive deep today into House of the Dragon, episode three. Second of his name written by Ryan Condal and Gabe Fonseca, directed again by Greg Utanis. But before we mount sea smoke and soar into our deep dive, some quick programming reminders here at the top, as always. By now, you know the hot D slate. Talk to Thrones on Sunday night, right here. The Watch on Sunday night. House of R on Tuesday, right here. Trial by Content on Thursdays. Listen to all of it. Don't skip a second of it. But that's not all. If you want to mix in some Harfoots with your dragons, Joe and I will have a deep dive on the latest Rings of Power episode for you every single Friday right here on the Ringerverse. We are loving Rings of Power. We cannot wait to break down the newest episode later this week. The Midnight Boys pew, 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 will, of course, also be with you on Wednesdays and our She-Hulk pods will continue on Thursdays. Follow all of that by following the Ringerverse and Trial by Content, and The Watch on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And by following The Ringerverse's social feeds, check out The Ringerverse on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and send us your emails. Joe, where can people reach us? Oh, hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com. 
Thank you for all your House of the Dragon emails, but also thank you for all your Rings of Power theory emails. You know I'm eating all of your theories up. We're going to talk about them on Friday. I'm so excited. So hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com. I love it. I love it. And of course, bear in mind our friendly neighborhood spoiler warning. Today's podcast will feature plot details from the third House of the Dragon episode, second of his name, all of Hot D to date, anything that happened in Game of Thrones is on the table. On the book front, we will be incorporating book canon from A Song of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood throughout the entire pod today for lore insights, historical context, and parallels. But the bulk of our pod will not feature any future Fire and Blood details. We will have a dedicated section at the end of today's show for book spoiler talk, where we will discuss how this episode of Hot D sets the stage for some of what's to come in the text. You will get another spoiler warning right before that section begins, rest assured. Okay. Programming reminders have been dispensed. (laughs) Spoiler warnings have been issued. It is time to rally the realm with our opening snapshot. Joanna Robinson, first of her name. Yes. Quick overall impressions on this year, episode three of Hot D. So I think of the three that we've seen so far, I quite liked a lot of it. I would say I liked, I don't know, three-fourths, two-thirds, depending on how you're counting the runtime uh, of this episode. Um, But I think it was my least favorite of the three that we've seen so far, just because it feels a bit uneven. Um, But I liked a a good deal of it. All the hunt stuff I really liked. How about you, Mal? You love a hunt. I do love a hunt. You love a hunt. (laughs) You're like George. Out there for years saying that Bobby B hunt was not what I had in mind. I need a full spread. I need roasted pork. I need pears that have been boiled and stewed. We should say, like, for folks who don't know, this is a quote that's been circling around a lot this week, is that in in James Hibbard's book about Thrones, George said his one regret from the one scene that really rankled him in season one was the fact that, like, the Robert Baratheon hunt was just, like, four guys perambulating in a woods and that chatting about making the eight (laughs) a hunt should have hundreds of people this feeds into the whole Robert Baratheon was broke uh, meme that that has been circulating since the tourney but that this is like some people consider this a kind of make good for George we know that George is a little bit more involved in this show we know that Ryan Condal like Sir Kristen Cole owes his position entirely to George so George (laughs) is out there saying I didn't really care for that season one uh, Thrones hunt. Ryan Condal's like, oh, you want a royal hunt, George? I'll give you a royal hunt. Anyway, that's where we are. I don't want any stag to be harmed ever, but I do love the the, the spread. I love to see all of the (laughs) roasted meats and baked goods and all of the... All of the the tents, and it really was just an incredible set piece. It's it's cool in the House of the Dragons built featurette on the episode. Really, really amazing to see the scale of what went into to filming that. They're like, Overall, we got chicken pluckers, we've got latrine <laughs> yeah. diggers, like, yeah. And, and, yeah. Oh boy. Um. So overall, my feelings on the episode, I would say that. Everything in King's Landing, which is about, yeah, I think three quarters, 45-ish minutes of the plot. We have the opening in the Stepstones. We have the conclusion in the Stepstones. The bulk of the episode in King's Landing was probably my favorite 
stretch of material that we've gotten so far this season. I loved it. I thought it was rich and thematically compelling and incredibly well acted. The Stepstones was probably my least favorite part of the season. So I think we're we're on the same page there that on balance, uh, the, the episode, uh, much like Damon and Corliss are at war with the Stepstones, the, the episode had a, a little <laughs> bit of a, a, a war for, for me and my feelings within it. But the King's Landing stretch was really phenomenal. We met so many interesting new characters in this episode. We have your fave, Lara Strong. Harwin Strong's here. We've got Jason and Tylan Lannister. That's fun. We will be talking, of course, about our guy, the crab feeder. Gone. Not too soon, but gone nonetheless. And before we move into our deep dive, should we chat for a minute about the amount of time that passed between this episode? Because it is a, a bit of a shock to realize that we are at Prince Aegon's second name day and that three years in total have passed between episodes two and three. So we had six months pass between one and two, three years between two and three. That is quite a stretch of our characters' lives to be catching up on in real time. And I think that for some, that's proving to be a little bit of a challenge when it comes to orienting anew inside of each episode. How are you feeling about the way that the time jumps are unfolding? Uh, you asked me last week if I had like time jump jitters and I felt like I didn't last week, but I do feel like I have them a little this week. And it's not because I feel that disoriented because you and I are studying the text so closely and we are knee deep in the book and all that sort of stuff. But I, the number of emails we got immediately from people saying, who was that dragon and who was on that dragon? To me, that speaks to if we had met Lenore significantly before this episode, Valarian, and if we had even met Sea Smoke, his dragon, before we first see Sea Smoke go into battle, that confusion wouldn't be there. So that's just like just one moment of time, you know, learning that the Valarians are dragon riders at all, which is something that newcomers to the show don't realize. Like all this sort of stuff. That's a virtue of them, yada, 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 over certain things. And so, um, yeah, I, I think we're seeing it sort of take its toll on the more casual watcher. Um, what do you think, Mal? Yeah, I miss one of my favorite things about watching Game of Thrones, which was, you know, we talked about this with Chris a bit on, on Sunday's Talk to Thrones getting to live in the supreme tense strain and awkwardness of the immediate fallout of people's decisions. So I think the 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 Lenor and Seasmoke point you raised is a great one in terms of the actual like plot and mechanics and introduction of the characters, understanding how time is passing in that battle and what is actually unfolding. But I found myself craving all of those in-between moments most in more of the quieter interpersonal dynamics. Like, for example, we have this really agonizing sequence in the Godswood when Alicent goes out to search for Rhaenyra. And of course, Alicent knows where she will be, knows where to find her, because Rhaenyra is in the place where they used to pass their time together, studying the books that they used to read, listening to Samwell's songs about Nymeria, a, a figure from history that they used to talk about and study together. It's funny you say songs when really it's just the one Just track. the one. <laughs> just the one on loop. 
on a on repeat. I yeah. sometimes listen to a song that I'm digging like 500 times in a row before I move on to something else. So I'm I'm with it. I'm oh, um, big time. <laughs> this is how this is how the song of Nymeria lands on her Spotify Wrapped playlist. Exactly. At the end of there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to figure out what her year end Spotify Wrapped aura <laughs> would be based on based on that particular musical inclination and setting, but we see the real cold nature of what is unfolding there. Of course, the hurt and the real despair that is defining Rhaenyra's reality, which we'll talk about across the episode today, and Allison's attempt to reach out to her and say it doesn't have to be this way. And I'm thinking, I would love to have seen their first conversation, the interaction right after the announcement of the of the engagement. What was the wedding like? And I think that we the moments that we get are rich and intriguing and highly compelling. And this episode and the King's Landing stretches, the Kingswood stretches, did a really great job of establishing frame of mind, doubt, ambition, and setting the stakes for what's to come. I just would love to spend every moment in between with the characters, but then we have a 20-year show instead of a three- to four-year one. So I recognize that's a challenge, and I think it was interesting to hear on the inside of the episode, Ryan Condal one of the co-writers of this episode and one of the showrunners for for the series, acknowledging that this is a thing that the audience is going to have to hang with for a bit. He said, a substantial amount of time passes off screen and we're just asking the audience to pay attention, listen and play along and figure out what's gone on in between. And I think that the fact that they recognize, which of course they would, that this is a unique structure for a show that requires real attentive viewing and buy-in, I think is important because it's on their mind as they're crafting the show. And ultimately, I think active viewing is a really rewarding way to watch the show. So I'm not concerned overall, but I I do recognize that this is probably, this is probably a challenge for, for some people. Uh, We got an email from listener Pete. Sorry, the cause give me every time. Um, P wrote, as someone who's never read the books and doesn't want to Google to avoid spoilers, how much time does the book cover that is available for the show? Since we're doing time jumps at a rapid pace, I'm assuming, I'm assuming this season is the Rhaenyra season and we move on to another story next season. Or is there a lot more to Rhaenyra's era to fill more than one season at this pace? Um, so I don't like neither of us want to get into too much detail because that's the mystery for the non-book readers that's unfolding in front of them. But we think it's safe to say something that George has said out there in the press, which is that this first season is going to cover 28 years of story. It's a lot of story. We're only, I don't know what, four, four years in or something like that, right? Um, and also... In terms of the book, though, there's a lot more story to come. So I think we can say that this story, which um, broadly recalling the Dance of the Dragons, uh, is not going to be a one-season story. And we had another listener email in asking sort of, because they like to follow along in the books, where we are in the books. And I will just say that if if you want to read Fire and Blood, which I always encourage, because you get to listen to the whole podcast episode with us, um, in my copy, which is the hardcover... It starts at page 339, which is Heirs of the Dragon, A Question of Succession, and then kind of goes to five, six, pi- page 568. And then after that is a chapter called Aftermath, and there's a bunch of chapters that deal with the aftermath, which we don't, the show may or may not go into. But just for like the dance itself, that's the chunk. And if you want to know where we are right now when we reference things, 
and really there's only like two sentences from the chapter that that <laughs> pertain to this episode, we're still firmly in Heirs of the Dragon, A Question of Succession. That's the chapter we're in in Fire and Blood. So that's that's sort of the book update. But yeah, miles to go before we sleep here. Mallory Rubin. And I'm delighted. Can't wait to, to walk those miles with you through the Kingswood. <laughs> It's a lovely day. Let's let's take in the Kingswood <laughs> together, as Rhaenyra and Kristen did. Okay, just, like, just like, just like, just Kristen. like, just like. We today, the, the last two weeks, we have gone chronologically through the episode. Today, we're going to group our deep dive by storyline instead, location. Yeah, indeed. Um, so because we're not going chronologically, we're going to do a quick. Plot summary before we dive in. The dragon has three heads. The plot summary has three minutes. That's the goal, to come in south of, south of three minutes. We'll see <laughs> if we can do it. We open in the Stepstones, where our guy, Kragus Crabfeeder, is still hammering away at both his to-do list and the hands of enemy sailors. Back in King's Landing, Sir Hugh of the Vale, reborn as a time traveler, now <laughs> appearing in House of the Dragon as twins Tyland and Jason Lannister, tells the king the Stepstone situation is urgent. Viserys couldn't give the two shits from a stag that he'll later <laughs> rub between his fingers because, folks, it's Prince Aegon's second name day. Ooh, record scratch. Three years have passed between episodes. Viserys and Alicent are married. Alicent is pregnant already with their second child, and Aegon is not only the toast of the town, but the object of many plots. The High Towers and countless others want and expect him to replace Rhaenyra as heir, much to Rhaenyra's dismay and Viserys' mounting annoyance. Marriage schemes mix with succession schemes as Rhaenyra discovers her father's hope to wed her to Jason Lannister and his honeyed wine. And amid a highly public blow-up between father and daughter, the realm's would-be matchmakers begin to make their cases, including Otto's pitch for two-year-old Aegon <laughs> presently soiling his small clothes on the floor and Lionel Strong's much more well-reasoned case for Lenor Valerian. The only thing more persistent than the scheming is the king's drinking. Deep in his cups, he reveals his dragon dream to Alicent, then battles both an epic hangover and the realization that the fabled white heart so many have identified as a portent for Aegon's name day did not come to him after all. It came for Rhaenyra, who bathed in blood from slaying a boar, decides to let the snag go. She's not the only roguish Targaryen reborn in fire and blood this episode. Damon rocking a new hairdo and unwilling to let Big Bro <laughs> save him puts Rickon Stark's combine stats to absolute shame, luring the crab feeder's <laughs> man out of their cave into his 40-yard dash zone. Corliss's cavalry in the fire from Lenor Valerian's Mount Sea Smoke arrive to overpower the enemy and Damon slays the crab feeder with Dark Sister, dragging him into the sea where his own leaking intestines <laughs> can feed his crabs. On to the deep dive. <laughs> Unbelievable. Every week, every week, every even time. though this even though this section is called Into the Dragon Pit, I forget every week. <laughs> it's the dragon. Every time. I don't. It's like violent oh. of my week. I just like sit here in anticipation for the squawk. <laughs> Remarkable stuff. All right, Joe. Yeah. Let's start with the Stepstones and your favorite foe and character in the history of stories, Kragus Crabfeeder. Just a profoundly deep character, I find. Um, 
Okay, I'm going to repeat what I did on Talk of Thrones and just read for folks who didn't yes. listen to that episode how this is described. Have to do it. In Fire and Blood. <laughs> George R.R. R. Martin, ever heard of him, writes, It is not our purpose here to recount the details of the private war Damon Targaryen and Corlys Velaryon waged on the Stepstones. Damon had little difficulty in assembling an army of landless adventurers and second sons. When at last he came face to face with Kragas Crabfeeder, he slew him single handed and cut off his head with Dark Sister. And that's it. That's all Ryan <laughs> Condal and his room of writers yeah. have to work with here. That being said, in terms of adaptation, there's a profound amount. Like, I love that sometimes that there is so little to work with that you get to elaborate on. One of my favorite Game of Thrones episodes, Hard Home, is exactly that based on sort of a tossed off line in George's book. So both this sequence and we'll get to it when we get to the hunt sequence are really based off of one line from the text. And it gives House of the Dragon opportunity to elaborate. I don't feel like they really took full advantage of that opportunity. What do you think, Mallory? Yeah, I think the hard home point is a great one because part of what made that so thrilling and to this day still so iconic and one of the best, not only battles, but episodes of, of Game of Thrones is the actual filming of the battle, what is unfolding on the screen, the shock of it, but also more broadly, the way that we and John and the free folk know we're moving toward this urgent point and urgent doom, but also are, are blindsided by what unfolds in real time. The Stepstones is almost the opposite of that, where there is more buildup and setup than is warranted <laughs> for, for what is going to unfold. And it's one of the things that, you know, we've been chatting about in the first couple episodes offline, just in our, our texting and our slacking. Boy, we're given the crab feeder grayscale. There's all this talk across the app, which means one of the first things we hear about with Corliss's pleas and pushes to address the threat. Obviously, it's like the final, really energizing note of episode two. Let's go do our own thing. Let's go stake our own claim. Let's go win our own war. And I always love to see a dragon out in the field. When that flame <laughs> hits my screen and the people I'm watching turn to dust, it's always exciting, of course. But this was certainly not my favorite Game of Thrones battle for, for all of the reasons we've just discussed. I think the timeline feels extra muddled in the battle itself because of the amount of time that has passed between to the point where you end up running through a set of questions in your mind as you're watching instead of just losing yourself completely in what is unfolding. Yeah. Like, yeah. okay, we hear Lenore say during their war council that it's pointless. <laughs> the crab feeders created this, this choke point beyond the dooms. The archers are up in these high positions. The foot soldiers hold the ground. They're strafing on dragon back again and again. Nothing is happening. They've retreated into the caves. And I'm like, well, we see what we think, at least in the opening series of the episode, is the retreat into the caves, right? But then I'm like, you pair that with Tylan's appeal to Viserys about how urgent it is. When did the retreat into the caves happen? Is that immediate, as soon as they face the dragons? And then we have to ask, did it take them three years to realize they should try to bait the guy to come out? Or 
was a whole war being waged for this long stretch of time. And then finally, that attack from Damon and Caraxes changed something about the circumstances and they sheltered in the caves. We know that it's not just about the sheltering. They're losing the men. They're losing the ships. They've got 16 to 18 ships. It's not enough. So we have all of these data points, but we just don't have a lot of clarity about what is unfolding. And when the battle is presented as something that is really like high consequence, you feel those omissions keenly. I think the other thing that I was feeling during the battle is that we know so few of the characters. Yeah. Like, we, I, I, we'll talk about the crab feeder more. We know very little. We've, we've of course, shared, you know, our, our canonical insights about the triarchy, the crab feeder, et cetera, the stepstones themselves, why this is a location of consequence. But we don't have any emotional investment in the foe. What I would say is, equally true, though, is that we barely know any of our heroes. We are very invested quickly in Damon, of course, and we're invested in Corliss, but we only know four characters on that side and two of them, Lenor and Vayman, we meet in this episode, in exactly. this sequence. So when we're watching John and Tormund at Hardhome, it is difficult to think of characters we care about m- more at that point in the story. But even the introduction of those characters, like, I don't want to harp on this too much because there's a lot we loved in this episode, but like, but Har- the miracle of Hardhome, and I've talked about this elsewhere, but the miracle of Hardhome for me is a character like Carsey, who's a character we literally meet in that episode. Um, and she dies in that episode. Spoilers for Hardhome, I apologize. But like, she dies in that episode and I am extremely emotionally invested in her. She gets great moments before the fighting starts. And again, a reminder that Hardhome is the Battle of Hardhome is not the entirety of that episode. It's a great comp because similar to the Stepstones, it is only part of that episode. And yet they establish these free folk in the span of this episode that we care about Carsey chief among them, you know? And so when she dies, her, you know, we care. And so we should care more about Lenore at this point than we do. We should have spent more time with him rather than just a brief appearance at attorney. Maybe he's there when his poor little sister is being trotted around the gardens or something like that. We should, we should know him better than we do. We should know that he has a dragon. We should know, um, Corliss's brother, you know, we should know who these people are. We should know, I mean, like a wild thing in that, in that war council, which is where we meet those two characters, really Jeffrey of Lawnmouth, who's the, the knight of the kisses is also there, but he doesn't like, that's a character, but we don't get to know him before the battle. So, you know, we may get to know more of him in the future, but I'm just sort of like, why don't, why don't we know these dynamics? And again, that's a, that's a virtue of the fast forward of the time jump, right? Because we can't get to know teenage Lenore because last time we saw him, he was a preteen and we don't get to see him in the intervening years. Yeah. Yeah. I do think the, the Lenore sea smoke thing is, is really key because we hear multiple times throughout the episode dragons plural. And so it's, we, we are waiting for the reveal that there's another dragon at play in the field. We see multiple dragons that Lenore is moving around on the war council board. You know, we know from the text from Fire and Blood, that at the Great Council of 101 AC, Lenore had already bonded with Sea Smoke. Hadn't ridden him yet, but had already bonded with him. And so perhaps the 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 timeline in the show is similar, and he has bonded with him for quite some time, maybe even been a dragon for rider, uh, rider for quite some time. Maybe this is one of the characters who Rhaenyra is referring to in episode two when she says, you have dragon riders, send us. But we don't know that. 
and that's strange to me. Like it's more fulfilling to see to to learn how he claimed him. To also, I think given the dynamic between House Valerian and and House Targaryen, and how much time is being spent establishing the really crucial nature of reforging the bond between those houses, Corlys at some point saying, "My son has a dragon." dragon riding my family are are now dragon riders would be like a relevant thing for these characters to acknowledge lionel strong when he's making the the proposal pitch to viserys making the case for lenore note hey he's got a dragon too we're setting it up as a surprise at the end and that's fine surprises are exciting when you're watching tv but in house of the dragon a show where dragon dragon riding is really really central to what is unfolding and who has some sort of validity and claim I I really want to see how these characters come to find their dragons. I think that's really important. Given that maybe we're not going to see that, maybe they're just going to like skip through. And part of this is logistical, right? It is very expensive and time consuming sure. to yeah. to show, you know, to create these dragons. The fact that they want to show us nine in this season alone is an embarrassment of riches for us. But like another question that comes up for for the Battle of the Step Zones is like, where is Rainey's? Who's dragon who is a dragon rider who's dragon male is like she is the most experienced dragon rider in the entire kingdom right she is an experienced dragon rider women fight targaryen women fight in battle where is Rainey's? where is melis you know and is it is it we can't we don't have the budget for three dragons at this battle maybe that's true but also we had we had an email from a listener roxy um <laughs> Who said it might be a minuscule question, but why do we think we didn't see Caraxes during Damon's battle with the crab feeder? I kept expecting him to come to the defense of his quote unquote dad. It was cool seeing Lenor's dragon, but I would have expected Damon's to be there for him too. Maybe it's because we got the impression from Daenerys of how protective the dragons are. So, like the gambit is right that Damon is on a suicide mission, right? He has put himself in an impossible situation because he is so ticked about this letter he gets from his brother. That he has put him, you know, and, and the showners made this very clear that Damon is ready to die to win this battle on his Would own terms. Sooner right? die than <laughs> let Viserys bail him out. Yeah. Um, and so the gambit is like, if I'm here, they'll come out because they know that Caraxes can't be here because I'm here, right? And then we'll surprise them with our other dragon that I guess we haven't broken out yet in this battle, I suppose. But they have because they say that they've been strafing them with both dragons. So that's part of what was confusing to me. Okay. I, I mean, I think we're just not going to solve yeah. the episodes yeah. is what's true. Yes. But do you want to do you want to talk about I mean, like, I, I want to hear from you on this because I think what's important to take away from this is some of this a little narratively messy? Yes. But I think what is important to underline is that just having a dragon does not yes. necessarily mean you're going to win a conflict. So Mallory, like, what's the, exactly. what's the history of this? Yeah, I think that is exactly right, Joe. However the Stepstones played out, it, okay, what we take from it moving forward, what we've learned about Damon's character and important information and, and and about Lenore's character in House Valerian and important information about what dragons do and do not mean in warfare. Now, we will not right now run through every single battle that has ever involved dragons. Obviously, if you've watched Game of Thrones, you have seen what the Night King did to Viserion. Not to mention what the, we will what not, the Iron no, Fleet. we will not mention. Quite literally, not to mention. <laughs> It will not be spoken <laughs> here on this podcast. But 
Yeah. In terms of the history for House Targaryen and what the characters who are living these events that we're watching on this show would be aware of, one thing that is definitely worth keeping in mind, not only because of the geographic proximity of Dorne to the Stepstones, but because of how crucial the history with Dorne is for House Targaryen, dragons during Aegon's conquest, Aegon and his sister wives, Visenya and Rhaenys, they all had dragons. They all rode dragons. Valerian, Meraxes, Vagar, Vagar. They could not bring Dorne into the fold. We have a literal death of a dragon and a, and a sister wife of C- Queen Rhaenys and Meraxes at Hellhold. They actually took a dragon down. But more broadly than that, they evaded. They hid in the mountain passes. They re- re- retreated from view to take away the source of strength from House Targaryen. We see what you're doing across the realm. We simply will not let you do that to us. So I think that that is true and important. Heading for, for this ba- for this battle in particular, I will say it's definitely not that it's impossible to beat a foe that has dragons or to evade or outsmart a foe that has dragons. This is where I was just like so hung up on, did it take them three years to come up with Lore the Crab Feeder out of the cave? Or was that, <laughs> was that a more recent? Presumably it didn't go to war right away. Well, and it, would, it could only be Damon or I guess Lenor. Um, I don't know. The logic, the logic has to be that they thought because Damon was there, no dragon could possibly come, even though that contradicts what they're saying about we've been strafing them with dragon fire from both dragons. But I- Crabfeeder keeps looking up at that in the air like he's readying. He's waiting. He knows what they might try. Listen, Mallory, as we know from all the rich dialogue that we've gotten from the Crabfeeder, he's a very <laughs> tactically savvy man. No, but the... Yeah. Uh, I think that we don't know when this war started necessarily in the show canon because it takes a while to muster the second sons and and to remind ourselves that the army here is not a crown sanctioned army, right? So landless adventurers and second sons. Not only, as you keep mentioning, are the knights uh, that are associated with King's Landing, the Knights of Summer, as as Rhaenys, you know, points out, these are green men who aren't tested. That's not even who we have in this war. It's Damon and Corlys and House Valarian, like vassals of House Valarian, but like a bunch of randos is who Damon was able to muster for this. So that's part of it. So like, did it take a year to muster those people? And then are they so bad at their job that this is how long this took? Right. You know? Because Viserys has that, that, retort to Thailand when he says, you know, it's been it's been three years. It, it can wait three more days because he wants to focus on Aegon's name day in the hunt. But that that could apply to just the the conflict at large, the declaration of intent as opposed to the actual warfare on the the sand and and in the in the caves there. That's it's it's definitely true. And I think that the 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 inverse of a lot of what we're talking about of like Okay, well, we sort of need to better understand the, and respect the crab feeder as a tactician to value how he could beat Corliss and Damon, two characters we're really invested in and respect at this point. The flip side of that is it does really track with what we've seen about Damon so far that he rushes in. He rushes in head first. I mean, we see it play out quite literally at the end without thinking through not only without thinking through the consequences of his actions, sometimes actively courting the consequence of his action, like acting rashly is part of the 
appeal to him and it, it is so central to his character. So that part of it, things not just being neat and tidy, I, I really like and I think is of a piece with, with our rogue prince's experience to date and what we should expect for him. What did you think of, of inside of House Valerian, some of the dynamics that we we saw playing out? Because Vaymond, who has been switched from Corliss's nephew in Fire and Blood to his younger brother here in the show, is actively challenging Corliss and Damon's command and decision-making and saying, if King's Landing won't support Damon, why should any of us? The Targaryens, not the only ones who infight. Uh, very good point. Okay, so I want to say a couple things. Number one, um, and we talked about this a little bit on Talk of the Thrones, but like that we don't get it stated outright, but the, t- the dynamic is, seems very clear that Vaymond is the younger brother. And this helps bolster Mallory's point from last week, which is that this idea that when Corliss says, we are second sons to Damon. He's speaking metaphorically for himself. We got a lot of emails from people who seemed con- like they thought that you, Mallory, I think they didn't, they listened to House of R and not talk the thrones. And that's, that's just what this ongoing conversation is going to be. But like Mallory really talked very eloquently about this idea of, of second sons being a sort of symbolic bonding, uh, scrappy thing on talk the thrones last week. I think a lot of people were like, Oh, you missed that. But no, Mallory doesn't miss a trick. So like, uh, I just want to say, give you a laurels for being right about that. Um, and I, I like this, but again, I would love to know Vaymond better before we go into battle here rather than just this one interaction. Um, and then Lenore, again, I would have liked to have known him better. Sea smoke, however, do you want to hear a little, whatever yeah, little information absolutely. I could gather about Sea Smoke? So Sea Smoke, who we meet here, we don't get to see like him not in action, but there's a great freeze frame that Palavar's put up on Twitter uh, that that underlies the fact that Sea Smoke has like a little soul patch, a little like wispy whisker beneath his mouth, which is fantastic. And I asked our pal Paula Fairfield uh, for her insight. She does the sound design on the dragons. We talked about Caraxes. We talked about Cyrax. This is her take on Sea Smoke. She wanted to underline the fact that this is all just in her her mind of what's going on with Sea Smoke. She says, he's a big old stud, a gorgeous overbuffed warrior stallion. stallion. What he doesn't have in brains, he makes up for in beauty, brawn, and fighting chops. His fire is said to be extra hot and spicy. May have a grinder profile unconfirmed. Also... Well, I'll I'll get into the other one later. But anyway, and also shout out to Paula because Paula also did the stag, the really disturbing stag noises on this oh. episode as well. So um Heroin. a lot of a lot of scary sounds coming from Paula. But that's yeah, House of Valarian is is interesting, and I'll be interested to see how that dynamic plays out going forward. Sea smoke, top three dragon name for me. Ooh, I what think. what tops it right now? Do you want to say? I I think my favorite dragon names across the canon probably are Sea Smoke, Dreamfire, and Sunfire. Those yeah. are my three faves. <laughs> I love yeah. them. They're really good. Uh, great stuff. Our Dreamfire, Damon. What else should we say about him? <laughs> the response to the letter. I, can I say one thing about this letter? Of course. I We're hard on our guy, Viserys Targaryen. Rightfully so, most of the time. And I do think it's really interesting that here... He is not moved by Tylan Lannister's appeal. He, we hear Otto once again actively say, you should not do this. You cannot do this. It would make the crown appear weak, he says, if he went and bailed out Damon and Corliss in a war that was not sanctioned by his reign. Alicent breaks through to him. 
in active opposition to her father's point of view there. So that is all fascinating to keep in mind in terms of the larger context across this episode of the Allison Viserys relationship and Allison's and Otto's relationship. In the letter, which we get during a voiceover during Damon's <laughs> pensive <laughs> rowing <canoe> ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Deliver the victory that has thus far evaded us, he says. And I got to say, that was really charitable and generous older brother stuff from Viserys Targaryen because I don't know that Damon had earned the us there. <laughs> Have I already asked you wh- whether or not, like, are you a younger sister, yes. an older sister? Younger. You're younger? Are you the youngest? Yes. I have an older sister and I have two older stepsisters, so I'm the youngest of the four okay. of us. Okay. We are both younger sisters on this podcast. I do appreciate the charitable us, but I will say if I got a text from my sister that said, no, that is not my desire to see you fail in your cause, I wouldn't have beat Sir Allen with my helm, but I would have been... <laughs> Piss. I thought it was really interesting that Ryan Condal said in the, and Sapochnik said this too in the behind the scenes episode that they considered this episode the death of childhood. Yeah. Uh, and that they consider that for both Rhaenyra and Damon and Allison. And, yeah. and Allison, yeah. right? And so Damon's, Damon's got a few years on those ladies. So he's a little <laughs> bit in arrested development. But, but, <laughs> exactly. But oh he, God. he throw he has a, full-blown tantrum here. Like, that's a very, very childish reaction. But this idea that this battle is going to be the making of him somehow, I think the, what is the phrase they use? Like an anvil to yes, forge, to forge character. character. Yeah. Like a beautiful, beautiful phrase. Um, And I think, I do think Viserys phrased his letter very carefully, but he also said, uh, you know, Rhaenyra asked, did he make a call for help? And Viserys says he would sooner <laughs> die. <laughs> Which she is smiling. True. Smiling fondly, but he's like, you know, and so I I, I wow. kind of understand something I didn't realize until the third time I watched the episode is that in the back half of the episode, the the whole ending sequence of the step zones, Damon doesn't say a single thing. Like he just reacts and beats poor messengers senseless and goes in and fights, but he doesn't have a single line, which is wild to me. So shout out Matt Smith for his uh, face acting, as Neil Miller likes to call it. And we should say that in the books, like Viserys does support this. Viserys is supporting this battle from the beginning in the books. He's giving gold to this cause in the also beginning. Very so this happy is a that, change. That Damon is occupied. Yeah. <laughs> let, <laughs> let him fight in the Stepstones. Better there than not here. Um, and also something that is made clear in the books that may not be made clear here is that in the book, at least Corliss, both Corliss, who stormed out of the small council room at the end of last week's episode, and Damon skipped the royal wedding in the book, which is wild. But then again, Ryan Connell and Miguel Sapochnik also skipped the royal wedding. So that's where, <laughs> that's where we are right now. Oh, God. Damon, what a character. Wants to wants to be elevated and, and loved by Viserys, but not uh, not rescued and, and diminished by him. What What did you think of the white flag fake out. Are you, as a, a Damon Targaryen enthusiast, and I am one as well, are you fearing for your boy's soul here? He's in, I, I think the 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 charitable read is he's in brawn. You don't fight with honor. No, he did. Hey, you can outsmart your foe territory. The less charitable, more concerning read is like our guy is in rat cook, soul damned to hell for violating. I just care so, I just, <laughs> Uh, this didn't even occur to me until you brought it up on Talk the Thrones. 
I guess I care so little for the rules of battle since battle is such a stupid. I don't know. I'm just. It's just not the same as guest rights. It's everything's on the table in in war to you. Yeah. Right. I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) You think Damon is cursed because he. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think he's cursed, but I think it's I think it is worth keeping in mind that he's a character who would do a thing like that gladly, (laughs) whatever is necessary to reach his end and to win. And I think that more broadly than that, I will run in to face death head on charge. First of all, Damon may not be one for thinking ahead, but he is one hell of a fighter. And it was really cool to see him in action and the way that in the actual field of play, field of battle, the things that he can do with his dagger, the things that he can do with Dark Sister, he's got... 4.340 yard dash speed on fucking sand. Like this is the (laughs) stuff that legends are made of. And Uh he's ready to die. Sure. That fuels the way that he is acting and behaving, but he doesn't die. And so he leaves this. The stuff of legend. Like when you do a thing like that and you make it to the other end, you are at the center of a myth that spreads around the realm. Like this is a this is an amazing moment for him. It is actually at the end, despite how badly it was going for so long, exactly what he wanted it to be and what he hoped it would get and what Cor- the pitch that the appeal that Corliss made to him. This is what is now happening for him in real time. Soaked in blood, as you noted on Talk the Thrones, that very clear visual parallel to Rhaenyra. And another thing that we heard from the director of the episode uh, from Utanus in the, in the inside the episode was this idea that for all three of them, for Rhaenyra, Viserys, and Damon, they're all, he said, emerge out of episode three reborn with new perspective on who they are and what their purpose is. That's the quote. And while that may be true for all three of them, I think undeniably there are way more clear and strong parallels between Damon and Rhaenyra specifically the physical one is covered in blood, this active killing pursuit, their solitary pursuits, the way that they are separate and apart from so much of the affairs of the realm. And Viserys feels, even if he is reborn as well in this episode, and cleanses himself and confesses many a thing, he feels very much still as a point of contrast to the two of them and that they are united in this way. It's like Rhaenyra and Damon had like a baptism in blood, right? And reborn. And Viserys still has his hands clean, but like, does he? Because needs them to hold the stag for him. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. All right. Crap Peter, Uh, before we leave the stepstones, big question that a lot of people have is about the grayscale. Yes. And we don't yet, I think, know how to answer that question. I don't know. I think this is a wait and see, but you know, are you, am I worried? Are you worried about Damon who held hands with the with the torso of a of someone with grayscale? <laughs> I was troubled to see Damon <laughs> holding him by the hand and saturated in his blood. Yes, I was troubled by I, that. Like, I don't know if grayscale is a bloodborne disease, but it's certainly like if you touch it, that's surface. A yeah. yeah, skin to skin yeah. contact, which is definitely yeah. taking place there. The grayscale that Jorah contracted in Game of Thrones appeared within literal minutes. So if Daemon Targaryen does not have grayscale next week, I think we can move on. That's my take at the moment. 
How'd you feel about the crab feeder dying off screen? Oh, we got this great email from Taylor that I think is so fascinating that I want to read. <laughs> Taylor writes, do you believe <laughs> sorry. Do you believe it is intentional or coincidental that big moments from Damon continue to be excluded for the viewer? For example, the stealing of the dragon egg and the hacking, apparently no duel, of the crab feeder. I know these are completely different from the air for a day exclusion, but I'm curious if this will be a running theme of Damon for us to question if he actually does these things. Uh, I think there's no doubt that like he stole the dragon egg and I think there's no doubt that he hacked the crab feeder in half, but I love this idea that like not only are we getting the yada yada of the time jumps, but maybe significantly with Damon, things are being excluded from our view. What do you think? Yeah, Damon is a agent of chaos and a character defined by an air of mystery. And he is very, he is a character who is, in, I think, some ways in that respect, benefiting from the time not spent because it it enhances that. It, it builds up this sense that there's something there that we're waiting to discover. The flip side of that, of course, is that he's just such a fun character and Matt Smith is such an incredible performer that we just miss him when we're not with him. We want to spend that time with him. But through three episodes, when so much of this is about setting up the dynamics and setting up the ambition for each of the characters, I think it's actually been fun that we have so many moments where we get to say, what's Damon thinking? What actually has he done here? And to know that other characters are, are just like we viewers at home are wondering about that. Yes, definitively, he found the crab feeder and cut him, cut him into pieces with Dark Sister. That's a thing that happened. But more broadly, I think it's an astute observation that there are a lot of things that we are catching up on and trying to piece together after the fact. Damon, what a character. What'd you think of the halfback? Should we save it for wig watch? But it's a fascinating hairstyle. <laughs> I don't actually have Damon on my... Oh, no, I do. I do. Yeah, let's save it for wig watch. Yeah. Oh, my God. I should expect so. <laughs> If that didn't make the wig watch cut this episode, I would have been stunned. We have a, we have a challenger, though. We'll talk about it. Ooh, okay. intriguing. Okay, stay around for episode awards, making the eight. Okay, we shift from the Stepstones back to King's Landing, where we will be discussing many things. But first, uh-huh. scenes from a potential marriage. <laughs> <laughs> can't can't fail to make a scenes from a marriage oh. reference when we're potting together, Joe. It's just yeah. uh, it's always a joy whenever we can. It's an ongoing bit for us. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, Rhaenyra's many proposals and the many schemes that are tied up for many players across the realm who have some sort of agenda here. Before we go through the suitors, because we're going to go through through each of them one by one, let's just talk more broadly about the situation that is unfolding here. Proposals are flying in from every corner of the realm. I thought I would would read a, a corresponding passage in Fire and Blood that establishes what is unfolding there. Quote, The question of selecting a suitable consort for Rhaenyra had been a concern to King Viserys and his council. Great lords and dashing knights fluttered around her like moths around a flame vying for her favor. When Rhaenyra visited the Trident in 112, the sons of Lord Bracken and Lord Blackwood fought a duel over her, and a younger son of House Frey made so bold as to ask openly for her hand. Full Frey, he was called thereafter. Iconic, even in the history books, the Freys are fucking it up and embarrassing themselves. <laughs> the passage continues. In the West, 
Sir Jason Lannister and his twin, Sir Tyland, vied for her during a feast at Casterly Rock. The sons of Lord Tully of Riverrun, Lord Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Oakheart of Old Oak, and Lord Tarly of Horn Hill paid court to the princess, as did Lionel Strong's eldest son, Sir Harwin Strong. Breakbones, as he was called, was heir to Harrenhal and said to be the strongest man in the Seven Kingdoms. Viserys even talked of wedding Rhaenyra to the Prince of Dorne as a way of bringing the Dornish into the realm. The passage continues from there with some stuff that we won't get into in this part of the pod, but a lot of familiar names, a lot of familiar houses there. Everybody is making their pitch. Yeah. What do you think Rhaenyra would have said to that last proposal? Do you think she would have been, God, he's Dornish. Dornish. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, Absolutely. The other, the other, I love that you read that. That made me really happy. The other apropos passage, of course, for this time is something we read on Talk the Thrones, but I'll do it again. Viserys is a man of peace, and during these years, King's Landing was an endless round of feasts, balls, and tourneys, where mummers and singers heralded the birth of a new Targaryen princeling. Alicent proved to be as fertile as she was pretty. Um, all right, so uh, this, I, that, like, again, Yada, 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 Damon fought the Battle of Stepstones, and yada, 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 Viserys had a lot of feast balls and tourneys, uh, is what we're working with here as we build this episode. And so the hunt comes out of all of that, and I think that's a really brilliant move on Ryan Condal's uh, part. Agreed. Um, All right. They end up, father and daughter, Viserys and Rhaenyra, after Jason Lannister (laughs) makes his move, which I can't simply cannot wait to discuss with you. <gasps> Having a very public argument because Rhaenyra charges in and challenges her father and expresses that she does not want to marry and does not appreciate what is unfolding. Now, the marriage plots and the succession plots are all tied up into each other. and We'll talk more about the succession dynamics in our next section. One of the things, just in terms of like the set the setting for this conversation that I really loved about this is there's this uh, initial response when you're watching this of embarrassment that they're doing this in front of so many people. But in terms of the fire and blood of it all, I loved this because this is exactly the kind of moment where multiple people are witnessing something and leaving it with their own interpretation. And then who are they sharing that story with? Who are they whispering it to? Where does their recounting make it? And that's how you end up with the text like fire and blood. And I think that like one of the things I've really loved about the show so far is that even though it is as, as stated multiple multiple times, uh, intended to be the definitive objective version of events, we still see all of the ways that we could have gotten the unreliable version of events and the competing unreliable versions. I um, I would encourage everybody to read Riley McAtee's piece on TheRinger.com, what a great website today on Tuesday where he, he runs through a, a lot of different things in depth about the episode, but he has a theory, Joe, that Samwell, the minstrel, is maybe the show's stand-in for Mushroom. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Mushroom, one of our one of our most enjoyable narrators in Fire oh, Blood. Certainly our most salacious. I wanna I wanna shout out something really quickly. We give Otto a lot of shit for a lot, uh, deservedly so. But when Viserys is going hard on his daughter in the middle of a tent and Otto cuts him off and is like, uh, sir, uh, development in the hunt. I mean, <laughs> good job. Good job, Otto, for once. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Got to manage that image. 
something we should talk about. Uh, yeah, put a glove can't on those missing fingers. Can't tell them about your backstory yeah. your missing fingers, exactly. <laughs> and can't let them see you arguing with your daughter about private affairs. What's wrong with you? Something that we should note is that, you know, we've also given Viserys a lot of shit for not having the hard conversations. He's having the hard conversations with Rhaenyra in this episode, just better done later in the episode when he does it in the small council chambers versus in the middle of a tent. But he is having these, finally, at last, having some of these hard conversations with her. You know, Absolutely. And he really goes out of his way, not calmly, but firmly and clearly to say, I have been trying to talk to you about this for months and you won't engage with me. Now, because it's Viserys, I'm always like, what does that trying look like? Are you steering into that storm or are you awaiting it's coming, et cetera? But he at least, he at least says that he has been trying to reach her. Though even then, it was really interesting to learn later when Alicent visits Viserys. He's just (laughs) sipping his hangover cure, sitting there with his missing fingers exposed. Gloves off for Alicent. Indeed. She knew not just about the marriage plots, but specifically about Jason Lannister. And that's the kind of thing with Viserys where it's like, okay, you're saying that you tried to talk to her about this, but did you actually say today at the in the Kingswood, at the camp, before the hunt, you will be meeting properly Jason Lannister, a man I would like you to wed. Like she's ultimately blindsided mm-hmm. with his the, a honeyed wine and tourism picture of the views from Casterly Rock. I will say, like, I don't I don't want to give Viserys more credit than he's due at all. But there is a moment where he like kind of looks at Jason Lannister before Jason approaches Rhaenyra, where it's just sort of like, oh, this I'm not sure this is a great idea. You know what I mean? And like he still doesn't say anything to Rhaenyra. She call he certainly her over doesn't and be like, wait, quick chat. Yeah. <laughs> quick <laughs> doesn't call Jason meeting. off. But at least he's like, this mm, maybe not. Um I want to talk about Rhaenyra's isolation, right? You talk about her, you talk, you mentioned Samwell, she's under the tree. That's where Allison finds her. And um Viserys says later, like, you've been much alone. And I think it's it's really interesting to think about this because um, you think about what Maester Aemon says. He says a Targaryen alone in the world is a terrible thing, a tremendous line. And then you think about all that isolation that Daenerys is feeling in the final season of Game of Thrones. Our pal Kim Renfro was making this fine point that in the episode The Bells, what a great episode of Game of Thrones, she says to Jon... Far more people in Westeros <laughs> love you than love me. I don't have love here. I only have fear. You know what I mean? And that just when when she says in the carriage ride, no one's here for me. Like that's just really strong echoes of Daenerys. You know, who's here to pay attention to me? Kristen Cole, that's too, but don't worry about it. It's fine, you know? No one's here for me. It was utterly heart-wrenching. Yeah. genuinely really really sad and I think overall there were a lot of really sad anguish inducing moments across the episode certainly for Rhaenyra also for Viserys and one of the things that I loved about the episode overall is that there's a lot of she she is expressing a lot of active rage about the marriage plotting and scheming and the way that she is being used to further some sort of political goal and end but her 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 loneliness is apparent across the episode, even independent from those proposals. This is a a broader just fact of her life right now. And when you see her in the Kingswood 
And she says the king has much to celebrate. He does not need me. By the way, this is a side note, but I thought of you because when she says, I've decided to remain here and read instead, I was like, yeah, this is real House of Our energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for mm-hmm. the invitation. No, I will not be attending this weekend. I will be staying home to, to read instead. A hundred percent. If it's not that, it's me eating biscuits with the ladies in the hunt. Those are my two Oh my God. Of, Inc- of- incredible. Absolutely. The, the carriage ride... I mean, you 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 hit on the the saddest line, but I was so struck by how she doesn't exit. She is sitting there alone inside as everybody is toasting and cheering baby Aegon and Viserys's new family. That was just so sad. I also thought that on the carriage ride, and we'll 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 circle back to this idea later, but I I was struck by that real awkward silence that hung in the air after Alicent talked about uh, how how easy Aegon's birth was and how that would presumably be leading Rhaenyra and even and Viserys as well to think back to Emma. I do want to say, though, I think Allison is 100% lying there because we get a shot of the nursemaid's face that is very much like, and it reminds me of when we get, when we're on the bridge at Dragonstone and Otto says like, Otto says to Damon in last week's episode, you know, the king would not, you know, lower himself to be here. And then we get a shot of Harold Westerling's face, which is very much clearly registering. That's a lie. Viserys wanted to come. You're lying right now, Otto Hightower. So I feel like we got this shot of this nursemaid's face that was very much like, I don't think it was an easy birth, but this is like, I Alicent looks miserably uncomfortable in her pregnancy in this episode. She's constantly rubbing her enormously like pregnant belly. And I think it's just part of her whole don't complain you know, I, you know, this is my role and I'm going to play it sort of thing. And also it's better for Rhaenyra to not be afraid of childbirth. So I'm going to lie and say my childbirth was easy when it, when it wasn't, you know? Interesting. Yeah. I definitely thought that her discomfort was overt in the, in the present moment, but also thought that she was being sincere about Aegon's birth and that it would be one more way for Rhaenyra in her mind to think about Alicent in contrast to her mother's, this person who has moved into that that role and replaced her mother in Viserys' life. But that's, it is definitely open to interpretation, which is, which is interesting. I thought just more broadly, too, of like Viserys saying on the... The, the stroll with Lena in episode two, I imagine even dragons get lonely. And strength comes up a lot in this episode as we'll discuss more as we go today. But I think that the show through three episodes is doing a really, really, really excellent job of maintaining multiple lines of emphasis for the the central characters at once. And in fact, reinforcing that not only are these realities not mutually exclusive, they are often inextricable from each other. The fact that you have to, that you are made to feel like you have to project this sense of strength or other people come for you. They think you're vulnerable. They think you're ready to be exploited and bent to their will in some way. This loneliness at the heart of these people's lives, and it just enhances the tragedy then when you have a rupture between, say, characters like Alicent or Rhaenyra, or when characters like Viserys and Rhaenyra, who had finally, it seemed like, broken through a bit, near the end of episode two before we realized that Viserys didn't say the one key thing, by the The way. The really important part. Yeah. Are back to not being able to communicate with each other at all. And I think that idea of loneliness really does, it's not 
as you say, it's not just Rhaenyra by herself with the bard on repeat under the godswood tree, right? It's Al- like if Alicent can't even, let's say my interpretation is correct and she's lying about how difficult her birth is, to not even be able to be honest with either your husband or your once best friend about this really traumatic thing you went through. That's lonely. When we see Alicent oh, surrounded absolutely. by all these ladies, that looked extremely lonely to me as well. She's listening. She's paying oh, attention. Yeah. She's in her element. She's playing the game. She's doing her job, but she doesn't have her best friend. And I, I, I found her to seem very isolated in this episode, despite being constantly surrounded. You can be so lonely, surrounded by people. That's easy to happen. Absolutely. You know. So. Yeah, that's a very, very poignant observation and and emphasis and and key area of interest for this show and this character set. And you can feel it sometimes too in this episode when Viserys and Rhaenyra are having these arguments, including this big blow up in the tent because we hear him say, even I do not exist above tradition and duty, Rhaenyra. And that of course ports us back to his frame of mind in episode two, where we know how heavily this was weighing on him, that all of these people, his advisors, his counselors, people he maybe at one point thought were his friends are coming to him and saying, this is the thing that you must do, not because it's what you want, not because you're ready for it, but because it is what your station and what duty demands. Now, you compound that for Rhaenyra exponentially by the sense of inferiority she felt her entire life, knowing that her father was just waiting for a boy, waiting for a son. We'll get back to this idea when we talk about the different succession plots in a little bit. But this broader sense of the role of a woman in society and the fact that she has now been made to feel like the whole entire realm, in essence, is ready to replace her. Nobody cares about her. Nobody cares what she wants. And her own father in front of everyone is screaming at her that this is what duty demands and requires. We hear him say elsewhere that he wants her to be happy, that he wants her to be content. But he also requires requires her to fulfill this obligation for her line, as he'll implore her, which was one of the more interesting moments to to break down, but also for House Targaryen, for his ability to stick with her as heir here. And I thought it was interesting that like even before this real boiling point of this fight, if you go back to the carriage, he's kind of tipping his hand, right? He's saying, and he's giving Aegon sips from his goblet that based on how cool the rest stuff. of the episode goes, I have to assume is full of wine. Mm-hmm. Troubling parenting from Viserys, the first Targaryen. But he's saying to her, you'll be with your own child sooner than late. And make me a proud grandsire. And... You're wondering then, because of the passage of time, how many moments Rhaenyra has found herself on the receiving end of a line like that when so much of the pain that she has experienced and so much of what she staunchly held and believed to be true even before her mother's death was a rejection, rebelling against that royal wombs idea, right? This like Arya Stark-esque, that's not me. I don't simply want to be defined by the typical role of a woman in society. I don't want you to just marry me off to further your political alliances. To to your point about like Alicent reminding her of what happened with Emma, 
Um, we got this email from Christy who said, I'm surprised no one in her world would see another secondary reason for her reluctance. Marriage and childbirth killed her mother, something she alluded to in the funeral scenes in episode one. It would only make sense that one of the reasons Rhaenyra is reluctant to marry is that it could be a literal death sentence for her. So, you know, just another thing to add into the mix of like, she's not just an Arya Stark-esque spirited child, but she literally like lost her mother in this horrific way. And and her mother said bef- shortly before she died, you know, this is our battlefield. You know what I mean? Like that's, she's like, no, thank you. No, thank yeah. you very much. Because you mean to replace me with Alison Hightower's son, the boy you always wanted. You have him in hand now. You have no further use for me. You might as well peddle me for what you can. A mountain stronghold or a fleet of ships. Devastating. Another incredible performance from Millie Alcock Millie in Alcock. this episode. This made me think a little bit of Cersei and the I am Queen Regent, not some broodmare challenge that she issues to Tywin in Game of Thrones. And there are a lot of different moments in this episode where I found myself thinking of Cersei. One of my favorite scenes from season one of Game of Thrones is that just exceptional conversation between Robert and Cersei, where they talk about how their marriage is what held the is the thing holding the realm together. And then they both, they cackle because like the absurdity of it is so heightened and they're able to recognize it. And then you get that really like haunting, how long can hate hold a thing together line. Speaking, can I just, uh, one quick detour on that? Speaking of adaptation, something I love about that scene, and I've mentioned it in other scenes before, is that that was one of those scenes that Weiss and Benioff wrote to pad out the runtime on an episode that felt, that was coming in too short. And And it's it's, an amazing scene. It's an incredible scene, but it is not from the book. And so, like, when you talk about, like, how an adaptation has to be diehard faithful or not— it just has to be faithful to the spirit of the text or not. And they really nailed later times. I have quibbles with their sense of adaptation, but in that scene and in many of those season one scenes that they added for to pad out the runtime of an episode, absolutely crushed it. You know, agreed. I agree completely. So Rhaenyra has lived her entire life feeling like she wasn't enough. Remember that episode one moment at her own mother and brother's funeral where she says to Damon, I wonder if in those few hours my brother lived, my father finally found happiness. Then at last she's chosen. Then she's still kept at a distance, dismissed from the small council meetings, her insights not taken seriously or heeded, scolded when she actually does act, then immediately out of favor for the bulk of the realm as soon as a son comes along. And in some ways, it feels like that's a worse thing than just never having been chosen at all because it does heighten for her, her belief and her fear that she was chosen because there wasn't another option, not because Viserys really believed in her. And we will get to the whole Viserys side of that and everything that he is grappling with later in the episode. But this is this is the state of Rhaenyra's mind and heart throughout this episode. And it is really, it is really heartbreaking. Should we talk about the potential suitors? Let's do it. Jason Lannister. We have to start with him. <laughs> Just amazing to see Sir Hugh of the Vale back. It's Jason fucking Lannister. <laughs> Incredible stuff. Thailand, master of ships. Maybe let's just mention really quickly for folks who don't remember. Sir Hugh of the Vale, very tiny, tiny part 
in season one of Game of Thrones. So let's not mention Sir Hugh of the Veil as if he was like something casual watchers should remember. But he's a very imperious, insufferable knight that we meet at, at, the, yeah. at the tourney in season one. Spear through the throat. How could you forget the, the gurgle of the blood? <laughs> I, I'll carry it with me forever. My goodness. So... We have now these Lannister twins. Tyland, who has replaced Corlys on Viserys' small council as the new master of ships. Jason, who is the lord of Casterly Rock and the warden of the West. And I thought it was worth just quickly zipping through some of the history between House Lannister and House Targaryen because you are watching this episode and it's just fun to see the Lannister lion. It's fun to have those golden locks back in our story. But it's definitely worth noting that this is a new thing for House Lannister, not to be Wardens of the West. That's established history as I'll run through here. But to have a seat on the council, this is a breakthrough for the relations between these two houses. The Lannisters were kings of the West until Aegon's conquest, until the Targaryen conquest, defeated in the Field of Fire, something that you all have heard us chat about on the podcast before because it's this really seminal battle and moment. That's when when Lauren, the last king of the rock, surrendered to Aegon, brought the West into the fold. They were not close partners with House Targaryen for the first century of, of Targaryen rule in Westeros. They were definitely not in, even though they were wardens of the West, and even though Casterly Rock is a rich and powerful seat, they were not in that Valerian, Hightower, Baratheon kind of tier of Targ ties. Lyman Lannister. Tear of Targ ties. Tear of Targ ties. It's a Targ tongue twister. <laughs> Lyman Lannister offered Aegon the Uncrowned and Reyna, you heard us speak about Reyna last week, safe harbor at the Rock during Magar the Cruel's attacks. Then sort of rode the fence in this kind of fascinating way that we don't have time to go through today, but was very emblematic of Lannister politics and tactics at that time building toward Jaehaerys rejecting the idea that Lyman would have a seat on his council because he just flat out didn't trust him, didn't trust the Lannisters, thought that they were strivers, thought it was better and safer to keep them at a distance. And Tymond Lannister attended the Great Council, favored Viserys. That's a helpful thing then. (laughs) As you're working to build closer ties. Also, Joe, you sketched out in prior episodes how the Valerians had moved above the Lannisters, the High Towers, on the richness scale. Well, the Valerians bounced. So you need allies with coin and reach. Need that money. Here we are. Thailand, the Lannisters on the council at last. Jason. Good job. Good job, Lions. <laughs> Jason making his his Tinder oh profile God. in real time here. The honeyed wine. Going over based on Rhaenyra's face as poorly as the smarm. I've got to say, Lord Jason Lannister, I gathered that from all the lions. One of my favorite exchanges of the season so far. Iconic. uh, It's it's very good. Um, (laughs) Chris and I had this interpretation that that I'm not sure whether or not you agreed with us, this idea that the Lannisters are hosting this hunt. Um, do Do you, like... How do you feel about it today, Tuesday? I interpreted it as just a royal hunt and a royal affair and that the Lannisters and Jason in particular have inserted themselves to an an extent that is not necessarily welcomed or warranted. Okay. 
Um, I'm still going with their hosting, and here's why. Um, or a reason why. Like we get we get this line about, you know, Lord Jason's waiting for us, you know, basically. Uh but wasn't that just for the about hunt. the proposal? Because he knows he's gonna make his marriage pitch there. Absolutely could be. But also, if the Lannisters are hosting this. I like the idea that Alicent shows up in Lannister red. It's not even Targaryen red. It's the dusky red of the Lannisters. And Alicent is so canny with her colors and her costumes. So she's showing up here in Lannister red. Uh, Rhaenyra is also wearing Lannister red. So I just kind of like this idea that it's like, again, the Lannisters to curry favor are like, oh, my lord, let us throw the royal hunt for, you know, Prince Aegon's name day. We would love to do that. Let us, let us provide the boar and provide the chicken pluckers and the latrine diggers and all that sort of thing. I, um, I just really like that idea. He's also eager to provide a dragon pit. And that's part of his pitch to house dragons. Of course, I do anything for my queen or <laughs> lady, or wife. lady, wife. lady this wife. is a This is a real like instant sirens red flag move from him. <laughs> Cause that was, that was the other thing about, the Lannister history is that they like coveted when they were housing Reyna, they coveted dragon eggs from Dreamfire. So I think we should be on guard with the Lannisters here when they're talking about dragon pits. I mean, and we should point out like, you know, Laenor Valarian's a really good example. If Jason Lannister were to get his way and marry uh, Rhaenyra, their child could be, with the last name Lannister, could be a dragon rider, you know? So. And what strength would that give them? Boy. Absolutely. Speaking of strength, right? So you want to talk about Jason's conversation with Viserys here. What do you want to say about that before I offer up my one of my favorite line reads in the history of ever? Oh, my God. I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear which one it is. So clearly Viserys, before this exchange and before Rhaenyra confronts him, is on board. He says that Jason Lannister would be a splendid match. But then he chats with Jason Lannister, <laughs> who manages to fuck this up in astoundingly rapid fashion in real time, presents him with the weapon that he hopes will slay the, the, the white heart, the portent for Aegon's name day. And he makes this appeal about how House Lannister can provide House Targaryen with strength, to which Viserys replies, visibly and instantly insulted by this, do you think that House Targaryen wants for strength? And Jason Lannister, cocky asshole, says, totally unfazed, if someone offered you more dragons, would you not take them? To which Viserys replies, do you have dragons to offer? Now, this was incredible. That's the line. <laughs> and it's the way yeah. that Patty says it with so like good. a pissed off smile on his face. Do you have dragons to offer? Fuck it's you. <laughs> so good. It's like you can talk all Delicious. you want about how high Casterly Rock stands. You can't reach the height <laughs> of our dragons and stop pretending that you can. This was so great. And I loved assessing in this moment and across the episode how Viserys deals with and confronts the idea of strength. Because here's the thing. If we're taking away all of our feelings about the actual players, the specific people, Jason Lannister's making a good point, a very sound case for how this alliance would benefit the crown. It's a point, absent the specific of specifics of Jason Lannister and dragons, that Viserys himself 
has made across the episodes. He talked last week about how their line was vulnerable. They needed to shore it up. Now, granted, three years have passed since then. He has a new marriage, a new son, et cetera. But this is something that is always on his mind. When he's chatting with Rhaenyra at the end of the episode, he is actively counseling her in this fashion. Strengthen your own claim shore up your succession. He actually recognizes and really values how important it is to constantly be thinking about strength, which is in some ways for his character, frankly, progress, because one of the things at the beginning of the last episode was how many characters were constantly saying, look at all these openings you're leaving. Look at how vulnerable you're making yourself in your house to anybody who would choose to act. Mm -hmm. What Jason Lannister is not factored in here is that these are private concerns for the king. These are things that he could discuss with his daughter in the safety of the small council chambers or his bedchambers. This is not something that you would dare to say to your king, let alone in earshot of a tent full of members of the court. What's this guy doing? Where is his hand? Jason Lannister needs a hand to offer him some advice to whisper in his ear. <laughs> Um, the last thing that I want to say about Jason Lannister in terms of uh, his suitability as a match is the look on his face when Rhaenyra returns to camp bloodied from slaying the boar. It's active revulsion. And we can if he contrast had, that. Yeah, if he had had a handkerchief, he would have put it to his nose. And if and if we had if the mic had been close enough, we probably would have heard him say, Dear me. Dear me. <laughs> He's horrified. They are clearly not meant to be. And we can contrast that with the look of absolute hunger and arousal on Harwin Strong's face, which that whole sequence, everybody watching, Kristen and Rodera return was so great. So we're funny. gonna get to Harwin Strong for sure. Any other thoughts on Jason Lannister as a suitor before we move on to baby Aegon Targaryen? Uh, I want to shout out a couple people just really quickly. Kira Lannister, the mother of Jason and Tywin Lannister, is introduced in this episode. Lady Lannister, we meet her. Um, this is a show invention, but like you know, I think it's interesting to pay attention to to the ladies here. Yeah, Lady um, Lady Red, Lady Red also making quite a scene. <laughs> Lady Redwine and her pug. So yeah. Uh, you know, Rhaenyra had previously said that she never jested about cake, but she jested about cake with Lady Redwine. And I feel like we need to, we need to. Wow. That. Wow. Call her all the way out on the table here. Okay. Very pro Rhaenyra and on her side, but she jested about cake. So bachelor number two, a literal baby. Tell me we about it, Mallory. Simply must play this entire conversation in full. Carlos. There is another choice beyond Castle Rock. One perhaps you might be more comfortable with one closer to home. Who do you have in mind? Prince Egon. The boy just turned two, Otto. Yes, but it would cease the endless proposals for Ramirez hand. <laughs> Betrothed them. I came here to hunt. Not to be suffocated by all this fucking politicking. <laughs> oh my god. Joanna. Otto, what a move. This is one of my favorite scenes in Game of Thrones history. <laughs> I, I, this is just the cut, the so cut to the baby. Funny. The cut to the cut to Aegon crying. <laughs> the like minute of silence as Viserys is processing this in real time. Patty's cackle, like a shock. So yeah. 
Yes. Yes. I was in tears laughing. In tears. This is a dumb move for Otto, right? Who is generally pretty smart. And this is a dumb move. And as you brought up on Talk the Thrones, I think we can attribute that a lot to the fact that he's getting pressed by his older yes. brother. Lord Hightower is pressing on him and he's and he presses him in a way that Otto makes a move that he's too smart to make, honestly. Like, because he could maybe make the case for the baby, but not like this. You know what I mean? Like Targaryen siblings wedding each other. Not unheard of. Like this is this is an easy case for him to make, but not in this moment, and not like five goblets of wine in to uh, Viserys's day drink tear here. Exactly. I I also wanted to mention this idea. You know, you brought this up on Talk of the Throne. This idea of like Lord Hightower calling Aegon second of his name, and how like rude that is when they get out of the cart, calling him second by his name. You would only say that about the next king, and he hasn't been named king. Rhaenyra, who's in your shot, she is the heir, etc. But also the conversation around the decision to name him Aegon at all. Aegon is a kingly name. So, so do you feel like Otto made the case that he should be named Aegon? Like I, that feels like an Otto idea that he maybe used Alicent to like incept it into Viserys or something like that. Like it's a real choice to name your son Aegon. Is sure it is. Well, I, you know, Balon was for Viserys's father. And what's next on the list for a guy who spends all his time thinking about prophecies and portents? The name for a king. A son born wearing the conqueror's crown. It's, uh, it's yeah. This feels like something from Viserys himself, but I love the read that Otto would have nudged it. I want to chat more about Hobart Hightower and the dynamics across the Hobart Otto Allison chain of events there when we get to the the succession dynamics in a bit because I think it is fascinating. I'm really glad you mentioned it here because it does feel like Otto acted more hastily than we're accustomed to seeing. And it's it's notable that Viserys challenges him really actively because we've talked across the prior episodes about how Viserys is typically does what Otto advises and does what he says. So this is a departure. It's really important to under to observe when Viserys can take advice and when he can't, right? And when someone out and out tells him to do something, he normally will not do it. And he says the same thing of his daughter. He's like, if I had told her not to marry the Lannister, she would have done it, right? Like this is a this is a trait that Viserys and Rhaenyra have in common. And so I think it's really important, like, if I can, if I, if you'll permit me to skip to the next suitor, which is... Yeah, let's do Lainor it. Valarian. When Lionel comes with his pitch, he says, do you wish to hear my opinion on the matter? Not, this is what you should do. And, all, you know, Viserys is pissy and suspicious and drunk, so, like, he has a bad reaction to it. But still, Lionel is, uh, Lionel is approaching him carefully and from that position similar. And we'll talk about the way that Alicent approaches him later, yes. but everyone who comes up and says you should, that has never worked with Viserys. You should date, not from Damon, not from anyone. So I think that's an, a real, like for all the, for all, for all the quibbles that we'll have about time jumps, I think their characterization consistency is so strong. Absolutely. With Alicent, with Rhaenyra, with Damon, with Viserys. And that that's what makes it feel coherent to me, even as we try to like grapple grapple with the 
the progression of the plot, you know? Yeah, a- absolutely. And, and, and as you said, he, he bristles initially even to that gentler and more thoughtful approach from Lionel Strong because he assumes that he's going to suggest his son. Harwin Breakbone Strong. And the way he says strong is it's just again, just incredible work from Patty across the entire episode. And the response, like the look on his face, the way he walks down from his campsite tent mini dragon throne down over to Lionel. And he looks almost angry for a second and then pats him on the chest with what seemed to be real gratitude and appreciation for the fact that somebody for once was not at least nakedly working through personal for personal greed and gain and seemed to be thinking about Viserys himself or the larger state of his kingdom and his reign and what a rarity that really is for him right now because the pitch that Lionel makes is for Lanor Valerian, Rhaenys and the Sea Snake's son. And he says, some years ago, I counseled you to take his sister to wife. My reasoning remains the same. He runs through him. Pure Valerian descent, shares blood with the Targs. His cousin Rhaenys is, is Lanor's mom. A way to bridge this gap between the houses. Brilliant. It's a strong case. Brilliant advice. <laughs> It's a strong Lionel case. Strong. Yeah. He's made some mistakes before, really wanted to preserve the patriarchy in episode one and was very ready for Viserys to marry a 12-year-old in episode two. But listen, he's showing here that everyone, everyone in this in this world of moral gray characters can win us over in time. Um, even though he was not there to suggest his son, Harwin Strong, Joe, I want to use Viserys' initial retort there as an excuse to quickly talk about the Strong brothers entering our story. This is, uh, to be clear, Laris is not a, a candidate for marriage here, but it's just a delight to see Laris and Breakbones. I was I shrieked with glee when they appeared on the screen, and you are a huge, a huge fan of the Strong Boys as well. How did you feel to see them? I'm th- I love Laris Strong. I'm very excited. I thought, I thought he was pitch perfect in this episode but I do want to like for the Chris Ryans of the world like Chris's dragon face blindness we might make fun of but I think he has a point where if you're not Mallory Rubin Joanna Robinson or someone who listens to five different uh, podcasts or reads reads the book Harwin Strong is not going to register for you he doesn't even have a single line he just has that like as you mentioned look of hunger yeah, as Rhaenyra you're like, comes back the into the camp the guy in the man yeah. bun making eyes at Rhaenyra <laughs> Tell and he's holding <laughs> holding down the stag, you know, like all that sort of stuff. Um, and then Laris, you know, he, like like for me, this is a huge scene for Laris, but he has like literally one line and like nibbles a cookie, nibbles like in a certain the shit way. Out of that cookie, though. <laughs> and that's so like needs the cookie to soak up the tea that everyone's spilling, Joe. I mean, love that. Love that for him. But like I would I would love a little bit more underlining of who the strong boys are for for the more casual viewers, you know. <laughs> that's why we're here. That's you why know? we're here. That's Thanks why, for keeping that's why us we're employed, here. HBO. We appreciate you. You mentioned CR, our guy, Chris Ryan. And so because this was something that was on his mind and we we should chat about it for a second in case anyone else is wondering, Chris on Talk the Thrones asked us about Kristen Cole, said he was picking up on some vibes by the campfire and weren't we all and wanted to know if Kristen Cole could potentially be a suitor for Rhaenyra. Now, Joe, will you explain to our beloved listeners why that cannot be? Oh, yeah. When you take a vow uh, to be part of the King's Guard, you are not allowed to marry or have children. So this is a big... You'll remember in Game of Thrones, Tywin was really pissed that Jamie did this because it effectively ended 
their line because and he doesn't Tywin consider Tyrion to put Loras in Showland yeah. in the King's yeah. Guard so that he would no longer be heir to yeah. Highgarden. So it's real. It's it's interesting. So Kristen Cole, as he mentions, is also very low born as compared to Rhaenyra. So that's another like he would never be in contention even if he weren't in the King's Guard. We should say. Right. Um, but there's a couple, like, moments of intimacy that I really like here. First of all, Kristen is kind of real with her. Like, he reminds her of her privilege. He's She's complaining and he's Anyone like, Anyone would switch, switch roles with you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then also, big move, actually. He takes his armor off by the fire. Shocking. Can you imagine Sir Harold Westerling <laughs> taking his armor off by the fire with the princess? If you told me that we got armor off by the fire and a night full of moans in the Kingswood <laughs> and no sex occurred, I wouldn't have believed you. My goodness. Uh, it's just oddly intimate. And like I I like this this like strain on Kristen because like when we first see him in this episode, it's at that like the pre-hunt banquet when Viserys is slapping food on his plate and he's Where looking for Rhaenyra. And Kristen looks so uncomfortable because he's like, I'm gonna be fired if I don't have the right answer to the, you know, he's like, I don't know. And he looks like, oh shit, I'm fucking up at my job. And so when he's like, I, you know can we please go back to the camp? I'm going to get fired, Rhaenyra, if we don't go back, you know? And I think that that's an yeah. interesting dynamic between them. And then also, I mean, not just him saving her from the boar, but also as her, um, the way I think Brian Condal described it is boiling over with rage. She takes out all of her frustrations on this boar, stabbing it. That's an oddly intimate, again, experience to have with another person of like just letting loose all your rage and frustration and going to town on, oh, on yeah. a boar, you know? And we'll get to the white heart later in a, in a ensuing part of our chat, but he witnesses something incredibly very intimate significant. and significant yeah. there. Uh, I also was struck by the fact that he made the little joke about, you know, do you want me to kill him about Jason Lannister? Like that just really spoke to how that passage of time had forged a real bond between them where they could just be like casual and have their guard down with each other like that. And she asks him, you know, do you think that the realm will accept me? Like she's really showing a lot of herself to him there. Uh, you know, you noted that because of his station, it would not be in the cards. That makes me want to move to the one that pleases you mm. line from Viserys. But I would be remiss if before we we moved on, I did not ask you what you thought Kristen Cole's number was because he says, I had an adventurous youth when my father served at Blackhaven, to be sure. How many people has Kristen Cole fucked? This was an iconic, yeah, I had well, a ton the, of sex well, when I was young moment. I don't feel like I have all the data. Oh, <laughs> Excellently uh, done. Our, uh, great stuff, uh, Carlos. Our, our Lord and Savior Steve Almond's on vacation, so Carlos is on the dare me button today. Excellently done, Carlos. Yeah, expertly um, deployed right there. Beautiful. Uh, I need to, I feel like I need to know how old, like, was Kristen like 18 when he was in the church? Like, how old is he when we first saw him in the first episode? Like, how much time did he, how much, like, of his youth? That being said, like, 20, at least. 20, at least. What do you say? That feels too high for you? That feels too low. <laughs> uh, okay. That's what I'm saying. I don't know how old he is. What do you say? Oh, I mean, I, I just... I, I don't know. This was quite a boast. I am really eager for a car Kristen Cole prequel now. <laughs> what what do you you have to put it down a number? I'm going 50. I was gonna say 75, but I don't know. He doesn't strike me as quite that much of a fuck boy. So All right. <laughs> 
Please DM us at ho- ho- hobbits and dragons at gmail.com if you have a, a number for Kristen Cole. Anything's possible. All right. One that pleases you. So we've chatted already. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Gods be good. <laughs> Oh, my God. We have chatted already today about Rhaenyra challenging this that is the order of things idea that we heard Rhaenys speak about Mm -hmm. in episode two. And one of the most intense and incredible moments of the episode, there's this great conversation between Viserys and Rhaenyra toward the end, right before we move to the Stepstones in the small council chambers. And Viserys is saying to her, I wish to see you contented, happy even. What is her reply? You think a man will do it? (laughs) You think a man will do it? The line read there was amazing. And she is making an important point that that is not necessarily the path to happiness for her. That's not the life that she is seeking. But then the, the exchange that followed after that was equally painful a family, Vasara says. And she replies, I had a family. I mean, this Tough. was just yeah. agonizing. A Targaryen alone in the world. It's a dangerous thing. Oh, dangerous my thing. God. Boy, I loved when she called him out, Joe, because yeah. he's making this pitch, explaining why this is something that she must do. And she says, if you heeded your own counsel, you would have married Lena Valerian, not Alicent. And to his credit, he's like, fair enough, you know, yeah. and, and Stops I think- him in his tracks for a second there, but then he owns it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And he's like, again, Patty Constantine is so incredible in this episode. The characterization of Viserys is so incredible and complex and nuanced in this episode. Like, is he a bad father? I don't know that I would put him in that bucket. <clears throat> does he make terrible mistakes in every single thing that he does? Yes. <laughs> But I genuinely think he does care about Rainier, and I believe oh, him sure. here. I agree when he says that you have to shore up your claim. Yeah, you have to do that. I'm going to back you, but you have to do some things to shore up your claim. And like something that we have called him out in the past for is making her his heir and then not telling her what to do. No one is telling her what to do. Viserys kind of is in this episode. He's like, you got to go on this hunt with me. Like, you're my heir. And like, we have to go on the dumb, boring golf game with the dumb, stupid lords. That's part of ruling. It's part of politicking. It's what we do. You know what I mean? And and you got to shore up your claim. It's part of what we do. So like, he's not completely leaving her hanging out to dry here. He's trying to talk to her. That's a great point. Albeit clumsily and, and belatedly, you know. Yeah. I, I think it's a great point because it does feel like a meaningful step forward from the you're young, you will learn. And then right. there's no uh, because I will right. teach you after right. that last week to right. let me walk you through this. And I, I think that you're I really agree with your read that there's this like, OK, our guy is making a lot of mistakes, but his heart can still be in the right place kind of melding here, because when he says as to your match make it yourself, search him out, find one that pleases you as I did. And this is on the heels, not only of them talking about Allison, but about Emma and that she made a man out of me idea and the love that he carried for her. When he says this to Rhaenyra, it is on the heels of us witnessing the exchange between Viserys and Alicent, where she kind of 
incepts him mm. to say, I do believe that Rhaenyra will marry, but she has to believe that it's her choice. And so you watch a moment like this and you're thinking, how much of what Viserys is doing here is because Alicent guided him toward this kind of more nimble, you need to have Rhaenyra take on a more active role here by thinking that she can shape this. But again, it's like, to me, they're not mutually exclusive. If Alicent is helping to spark that progress, then that's a good thing, even if she is working for other reasons as well. And Viserys can want her to be happy. I'm not sure Alicent's playing her father's game at this point. Like, we can discuss that, but I'm not sure that that's her agenda. But what I love about that is that she's like, Rhaenyra needs to think it's her idea, just as she's like to Viserys. She needs to think this is your idea. Same thing to Viserys. Yeah. So he's like doing what Allison is doing to him, and that's you know just showing you how good Allison is at this game. Totally. But he can still also want Rhaenyra to find happiness, even if Allison helped guide him toward that moment. So I do. That brings us nicely to the second of his damn sparker of myriad succession <laughs> schemes aspect of this episode because the marriage plots are certainly not the only ones that are afoot. Prince Aegon's second name day has brought all of the schemers out of the shadows into the Kingswood. You you teased some of the Hobart Hightower aspects of this already, yeah. Joe. Let's just chat more, and we were just talking about Allison, about the house Hightower of it all with Hobart and Otto and Allison because I thought that this glimpse, not only the brazen hail hail Aegon the Conqueror babe second of his name moment that you you already mentioned and that we talked about on Talk the Thrones which I found legitimately shocking in its boldness but the conversation between Hobart and Otto where we see that just as Otto is attempting to use Alicent as a pawn to further his end we see that Hobart the head of House Hightower is using Otto in the same way. Otto says, I don't know that his grace sees it so clearly, meaning that Aegon will become heir. And Hobart says, then it lies with you to make him see it, Lord Hand, which is almost identical to what Otto will later say to Alicent. You must guide Viserys toward reason. He'll never never find it on his own. own. And so Mm -hmm. we're left now thinking how much of what we've seen from Otto to date is his own intention that second son's idea that's recurred across the episode of needing to forge your own circumstances and your own achievements and how much of it is him acting on behalf of his older brother's orders to further house Hightower's standing and position. A hundred percent because we think about that scroll that he sent off in episode one to the reach, right? And like I said on the podcast in the book, that's a letter to his brother. And some people are like, oh, it's a spoiler. But I don't think so. It's just like, it just shows that he's in constant contact with his brother and that Hobart Hightower, like Otto being Hand of the King is part of Hightower's jockeying for position and influence, obviously. And that Hobart would see Otto as his way to long distance control the king. Right. So, right. Let's let's chat about the auto Allison aspects of this Would episode. Love what an incredible Allison Hightower episode. Yet again. One of the, we've, you mentioned Otto's misread in approaching Viserys earlier and more broadly in terms of him, <laughs> I just like, like what is going on in your head this episode, my dude, when he said to Allison, you, when you bore the king of son, you ended 15 years of uncertainty and doubt. It's like, 
there's never been more overt uncertainty and doubt than there is in this episode because everybody is trying to make their case for the thing that they want. And I love that because it really speaks to his hubris and the fact that he feels like he has complete control of not only the circumstances, but the outcome. Like we hear him voice doubt to his brother, but in a moment like this, he's like, I will be able to achieve this end because it has worked out for him so far. He wanted the marriage, he got it, et cetera. So the absolute conviction in his voice when he is talking to his daughter. He's the firstborn son of the king to deny that he is heir to the throne is to assail the laws of gods and men. The road ahead is uncertain, but the end is clear. Aegon will be king. You must guide Viserys towards reason. He'll never find it on his own. Love the creak of the chair in these sound bites. Yeah. When he is speaking about assailing the laws of gods and men and the impossibility of Rhaenyra's path to rule because she is a woman, it literally never occurs to him once that he is speaking to an increasingly powerful and independent woman. I think what's also interesting, I think I was looking for this language to 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 keep pulling on this thread of Alison's piety. I think this mm-hmm. idea that he says yeah. to deny that he's heir to the throne is to assail the laws of gods and men. Yeah. Like Alison has been raised to be such an obedient, pious woman. And like, is she finding her own power in this episode? Yes, I think so. And I really want to talk about that. I want to talk about... Like, not only does she say that she thinks Rhaenyra will be a good queen, not only does she seem extremely loyal to Rhaenyra, despite Rhaenyra being like, I want nothing to do with you. We see her be loyal to Rhaenyra in the tent when she's surrounded by other the other women. She's like, David made his choice. Rhaenyra will be a great queen, all this sort of stuff. Makes a direct appeal to Rhaenyra. It doesn't have to be this way. Right, exactly. But also, I want to talk about, like, Allison's the way in which Allison finds some of her power in this episode. This idea of, like, when we see her with these women, Lady Redwine, Lady Lannister, which is exactly what her father asks her about. How did my grandson go over? Like, Allison is out here collecting information, collecting intel. But I think it's also important that, like, you mentioned earlier that Viserys makes the move on the Stepstones because of what Allison says. We watch Allison the entire episode gathering intel about the Stepstones. We watch her clock what Tyland is saying at the beginning. She gives him that little, like, shake of the head, no, don't press Viserys. It's not the way to do it. We see her asking follow-up questions from, like, the ladies, Redwine and Lannister, about Lady Joanna, shout out Lady Joanna, and being abducted by the crowd eater. This is this is a thing from the book. And she says, and what will happen to Lady Joanna? So like Allison is out here getting information and using it to build her case that she makes later. And I just like this idea that in contrast to Rhaenyra, who is like, if I am not this the treated the same as a male heir or the spotlight of the center of attention, I don't have any power. And Allison finding her power in the position that she's put in. It reminds me a lot of like Marjorie Terrell and Lady Olena Terrell, who like Lady Olena makes her deals in the gardens. Like that's like, find your spot, find your power and operate from there. And that's what Alicent is learning to do, um, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. I love that. You will serve the cheese when I tell you to. 
not in the course that you had previously determined. Damn yeah. it, Elena. What an icon. Miss her every day. I think it's so interesting. And like, we do see Otto coaching her here the way that we would like more overtly, the way that we sort of wish Viserys was coaching Rhaenyra a little bit more overtly. And Otto's a creep in a lot of the things that he's doing, but he is at least taking a very hands-on move here, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Did you feel like a shift at all in the nature of their exchange? Because what we had previously witnessed was Otto saying, do this thing. And Allison saying, if it please you. And, 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 you know, if you wish it. And in in this episode, like, you did feel the passage of time, I think, in a really positive way for Allison's character because Otto actually voices like, does this not please you? Is this not what you would want? And Allison really pushes back against what he's saying. Like, would you have me raise my son to steal his sister's birthright? And almost in some ways, like mocking the absolute myopia of his focus with the, you know, is this like not what you want for, you don't want your kid to be king? Oh, what mother, what mother wouldn't? There are so many other things that Allison is seeing on the board already. There's a couple, I have a couple responses to them and they come from some really interesting emails we got. First, we got this email from Patricia who is comparing Allison's approach here to Littlefinger, actually. When Littlefinger <sighs> says, <laughs> Littlefinger says, uh, about losing a duel with Ned Stark's brother. He says, you know what I learned losing that duel? I learned that I'll never win. Not that way. That's their game, their rules. I'm not going to fight them. I'm going to fuck them. That's what I know. That's what I am. And only by admitting what we are, can we get what we want. So how do you, if you can't win their game, play your own game, play your own role sort of thing. And then this really interesting email we got from listener Michael, who, and I'm going to do part one here and part to in our book reader section about Alicent. Michael writes, a lot of fan discussion is tacitly or blatantly predicated on the question of what Alicent wants. But I feel pretty strongly that it's almost impossible to answer that question. She might want queenship and power or Rhaenyra's friendship or more, or the advancement of her house or a Masaria-like safety, but we don't know because Alicent herself has never really had the chance to answer that question and certainly not do anything about it. Lots of examples out there and shout out to Emily Carey's constant carefully schooled poker face. But just this week, Allison is clearly physically uncomfortable with her pregnancy at many points in the episode, in the carriage, and when Otto is plotting her ear off. But you can't do anything about it. Allison goes on the hunt because the maesters encouraged it and Viserys wanted her to. Allison listens to her father because she can't do otherwise. But all she can say when he asks if she wants her son to be king is, what mother wouldn't? Tip to Lord H, that's not an answer. So like... What does Allison want? And I don't know that we yet mm-hmm. know. It's interesting because right. I got I saw some pushback from people saying that they thought I was having too much of a 2022 read on Allison, a little too much of like a fuck the patriarchy read on Allison. But I think we're seeing an evolution of a character and where she goes, we can discuss when she gets there. But I really think from right now, I agree we've seen an evolution. Like I I don't think her fingers are bitten to the bone anymore. Like I think she's learning that she does have power as the queen. She can command Samwell to leave the godswood. Like she does have some queenly power. She can push back on her father a little, but she's not a- outright rebelling, at least at not this point. You know? and, and, and also she can break through to the king, not only in the moments where her father is guiding her, but sometimes an active opposition to what he would what he would want. And we already mentioned this with the stepstones, but like that was really notable to me that when she sees the letter, she 
the 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 advice that she gives to Viserys there, the way that she implores him to act is in direct opposition to what Otto had previously said he wanted. And she is able to break through to, to Viserys, which then empowers her moving forward to know that she can reach him in that way. And so whether she initially walked into that room because Otto asked her to go talk to the king about Aegon or not, we we need more time to uncover the full truth of that. But I think what we can say for sure is that she is a much subtler and more patient and methodical actor than her father or her uncle. And that is to her immense credit. The fact that she does not mention Aegon or the succession or broach it in that way, but instead engages him on Rhaenyra and her marriage, leading to a conversation between Viserys and Rhaenyra, where is everything like totally copacetic coming out of that? Of course not. We wouldn't have much of a television show (laughs) ahead of us if it were going to be. But they are able to speak and find a way forward after Viserys speaks to Allison. And again, her ability to reach him is in such stark contrast to what we see across the episode where he is actively challenging a character like Jason Lannister, say, by saying to him, I did not decide to name Rhaenyra my heir on a whim. All the lords of the kingdom would do well to remember that. And expressing to Alicent how he feels like he is forever doomed to anger one person in an attempt to make other people happy and that he's like grappling with. He's talking about the stepstones there, but I think it applies more broadly to his character. And it all leads to that moment with Rhaenyra at the end where he makes a, a pledge to her. She's about to exit the small council chambers and he confesses to her, I did waver at one time. But then he says, I swear to you now on your mother's memory, you will not be supplanted. And he makes that assurance to her after an episode that is spent grappling with his dreams and the signs that everybody, including him, are reading. So let's talk about the dragon dreams and the royal portents here. I love to talk about dragon dreams. (laughs) We witness an incredible scene in front of a roiling fire, beautiful bonfire there, where Viserys, absolutely hammered, I wondered if Lancel Lannister had, had traveled through time to ensure that the king did not lack refreshment on the hunt, much like with Bobby B, is utterly despondent and tells Alicent about his dragon dreams. Joe, we've talked a lot about the dreams through the first couple pods. This was an amazing scene where we got to learn so much about the stock that Viserys put into the dream, not only as a sign, but as a way to see himself in the long line of Targaryen history. He says, many in my line have been dragon riders. Very few among us have been dreamers. What is the power of a dragon against the power of prophecy? And he also adds, I so wanted it to be true, to be a dreamer myself. I was so, so, so struck by this. And not just in a vacuum, but in the context of what we've chatted about a lot over the last couple of weeks, not being a dragon rider anymore after Balerion's death. And maybe he sees these, this, this, this dream, this prophecy, as a way to cement his station as this legacy-affirming thing, this pathway to being a truly special and great Targaryen king, a chosen one, sanctioned by the signs. What did you make of this, this pursuit of validation? I love this. And I love how much, like, this is such an addition of the show to the character of Viserys in the book. The character of Viserys in the book, 
a vacillator, a party king, a people pleaser, but not necessarily leaning into this idea of him being a dreamer. And so I was listening to this great interview with Ryan that Ryan Condal gave the History of Westeros podcast, where he was talking about how inter- how fascinated he is by the character Daron the Dreamer or Daron the Drunken. That's a later figure in Targaryen history. So like this is not, this exists hundreds of years down the line or whatever. But Daron the Dreamer, he has this great quote. He's a fe- feature in the Duncan Egg books. And he has this great quote where he says, my brothers have my measure when it comes to fighting and dancing and thinking and reading books, but none of them is half my equal lying insensible in the mud, right? So that there he's talking about being a, like a drunk. But the reason that Darren the Dreamer is drunk all the time is he is besieged by these incredibly accurate dreams and it torments him and it plagues him. So watching Viserys get increasingly drunk in this episode and being plagued by the uncertainty and the pressure and the whatever and and the wanting t- to feel his place in comparison to his brothers it really feels like Ryan Condal took a character that he loved Darren the Dreamer and sort of like shoved him into the margins of Viserys here and I love it I think it works really really well to enrich the story I I love that that's uh, that's I think that's spot on and the torment really manifest for Viserys here because we can feel and see as he is recounting and confessing and, and bearing his soul to Alicent, the way that his guilt haunts him. He, he says, I, I poured all my thought and will into it. My obsession killed Rhaenyra's mother. He is like choking out these words through the tears. And this was legitimately sad to watch. Patty. I, I've I thought this was just an unbelievable Patty episode. I think he's been great through the whole show, but this was this was a so tour de force. It really this was. Is the, this is the Emmy reel. The Emmy reel, right yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And we see, crucially, the way that the doubt has, has, has gripped him and still does. And this was, I think, an essential element of this episode because it's not just the other people, the Jason Lannisters, the Otto Hightowers, the Hobart Hightowers, who were saying, have you thought about this, actually? Can I make this suggestion to you? It is this voice, this nagging question inside of his own heart and mind. He says, I thought Rhaenyra was the way out of my abyss of grief and regret, that naming her heir would begin to set things right. I never imagined I would remarry, that I would have a sin. What if I was wrong? Now that what if I was wrong is a haunting final note that could mean many things and open many doors. What did you make of this? I I really like Viserys himself. I feel like he I feel like the best read of this for for a character like Viserys is what if I was wrong about literally everything? What if I was <laughs> wrong that I'm a dreamer? What if I was wrong that Aegon was right? But what also what if I was wrong to name Rhaenyra? Like like all he wants is someone to tell him what to do, which is why Alicent is a really good match to sort of gently like as much as he box against people telling him what to do, what he really wants is to know what the right thing to do is because he feels incapable of making that decision by himself because he's afraid of hurting people, right? No matter what I choose, I'm hurting someone, is what he says, right? Um, I think it's really notable that in this section while he's talking to Alicent about this, and Chris was really right to point out on Talk of Thrones that like the fact that Alicent is the audience here is feels very important. But also... Uh, in the books, Rhaenyra is known as the Realm's Delight. He calls her the Realm's Delight. Here is the first mention we get of the Realm's Delight here. And he's like, I really thought I was making a pretty popular decision. She's the Realm's Delight, and now none of them want her. What the hell? You know, like, little did I know how 
many misogynists were running, you know, like how deep this runs. Uh, and I put my daughter in this awful position. Like, what if I was wrong? It's it's really heartbreaking. It is. Since you mentioned Allison as audience, I, I wanted to ask you, do you think, and again, we've mentioned before that the reveal of Aegon the Conqueror's dream is a, a, a new thing for the show. So we genuinely do not know what the answer to this is. Yeah. Do you think now that he has revealed this to Allison, taken her into his heart and mind to this extent, he will tell her about Aegon's prophecy? We talked about this a little bit in the book section last week about sort of like who will know what going forward. And I will just say as vaguely as possible, I still like the idea of Allison not knowing. Are you are you team she will know or team she won't? I don't. I, this was the first time I had considered the possibility that maybe he would tell her after seeing what he shared here. I have no clue. I think you're right that it's still it's it's less likely than likely, certainly. But this was the first time that I was like, huh, I don't know. Give, give my guy a, uh, the finest vintage from the arbor for a, a day and a <laughs> half and anything can happen. Anything can happen. <laughs> I, I love, Joe, what you said a minute ago about the way that the the doubt could be interpreted in so many different ways and that the question of what if he was wrong could apply to so many different decisions and things. Because I think that takes us nicely to the last thing that we wanted to talk about before we get to our awards, which is this portent of the white heart, something that Viserys is processing in real time across this episode. This is, the the, the white heart is, is, of course, a symbol across not just this episode and and this story, but storytelling at large, religion, mythology, folklore, in the inside of the episodes and the making ofs. The the showrunners chatted a lot about Arthurian legend and this like div- symbol of divine rule is something that they were specifically drawing on here. You know, this idea of transformation and rebirth is is very much associated with the white stag, which I think certainly fits this episode, given the number of times we've talked about rebirth and a baptism in blood in this episode. Purity, strength, the quest, the messengers. It's a very rich and laden symbol on uh, across a, a Song of Ice and Fire. Obviously, the stag is the sigil of House Baratheon. We chatted on Talk the Thrones a bit about how King Robert's fateful hunt when he was ultimately skewered by a boar, a boar is what Rhaenyra and, and Kristen take down here. He set out initially in pursuit of a white heart. We've chatted more broadly about the animal imagery and symbolism across George's tales, finding that dire wolf and that stag dead together in a Game of Thrones. Yeah, one we didn't mention that I really like is that um, when Stannis and his men are starving outside of Winterfell, uh, they supped that night on a venison stew made from a scrawny heart that a scout called Benjakot Branch had brought down, but only in the royal tent. This idea that, like, Stannis is the scrawny heart, this, like, <laughs> stag at the end of, you know, this ha- symbol of House Baratheon, just skin and bones at the end of his life sort of thing. It's really Stannis. fascinating. I bet that tasted better than uh, boiling the bindings of books. So, a rich he's had symbol, worse. It's but true. He's had it's worse. True. <laughs> Ah, Stannis. Boy. So inside this episode, the symbol of the White Heart is discussed many times. It's identified as a a sign on Prince Aegon's name day that he is meant to rule. 
Otto has a couple lines about this. He says, the stag is the king of the Kingswood, your grace, a regal portent for Prince Aegon's name day. And then later says, I've never been one for signs and portents, your grace. But if the gods did wish to show their favor, we hear it from Jason too. It's as if the seven themselves have blessed this day. Quick question. Yeah. Uh, would you say signs and portents are the same things, just like schemes and plots are the same thing? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We need to just do a, a remix of Tyrion's line, but for <laughs> signs and portents this time. Signs and portents are the same, same thing. thing. Same thing. <laughs> I well, love it. That feels like that's going to be an applicable bit moving forward <laughs> in our House of the Dragon pods. Can't wait. Viserys' reaction to these signs, but also then to the brown stag, not yeah. the white heart in that decisive moment. The weight of the signs, the discussion of what they might indicate seemed to be dragging him down all episode from the very first mention. Uh, Ryan Condal said in the inside the episode, we know that Viserys is kind of prone to mythology and signs and dreams and symbolism and to have that symbol put in front of him on this day where he's really secretly wondering whether he's made a wrong decision and then be forced to reckon with it on a dramatic level was a really interesting thing for us. So that's weighing on him. And then this moment where they arrive, he's rubbed the shit between his fingers, he's sniffed it, he's gone back for more drinks, he's bared his soul. Okay, they have the He stag. wiped it. He wiped it on auto, just FYI. He needs some Purell in the seven kingdoms. <laughs> just concerning... <laughs> All around, troubling <laughs> all around. Oh he gets there, Joe. All this talk, all episode long. It's not the White Heart. All of these men are assembled to pin down for him. In And we heard Otto say to Damon on the bridge in episode two, he called it a mummer's farce. This is the ultimate mummer's farce sure here, is. right? This yeah. play acting of this great kingly kill. And... It's it, it feels like open to interpretation what is playing out on his face. He's closing his eyes, he's breathing in, but it seems that it is weighing on him in myriad respects. So I think you can interpret it, and this is part of the fun of it and what fits with what you were saying earlier, in all of these directions at once. And one's not coming at the expense of the other. They're all in his mind at the same time. On the one hand, this is another prophecy that didn't pan out for Viserys Targaryen. Another reason for him to doubt whether he is the chosen one, whether the gods have sanctioned him, whether he has been blessed in this way. On the other hand, it did feel like there was this palpable relief mixed in with that, knowing that he's not gonna immediately have to put stock in the whims of the men of the realm who would say, well, look, Look at how the gods have blessed Aegon's name day with this white heart. We now have to raise his claim. This is a reprieve. It's an excuse that allows him to stick by his decision to stay by Rhaenyra, but then also a sign that maybe he didn't make the wrong choice because the white heart didn't choose somebody else, but it also didn't choose him. So this was just a fascinating thing that I really loved. And Sapochnik in the inside the episode you know, said something to that effect. He said, so then when it turns out it's not a white stag, but it's a brown one, his relief is palpable, but also in a funny way, there's disappointment that sometimes these things aren't meant to be. Viserys, any thoughts on the response to the portent? Signs and portents? No. <laughs> portents Sounds and good. signs? 
What did you think more broadly of the theater of the kill and contrasting his kill to Damon's and Rhaenyra's? He has to just walk away with everybody clapping for him, knowing what a farce this all is. <laughs> what did you think of this? Yeah, a real, a real uh, please clap moment for our guy, Viserys. Really tough. I like this idea that eventually we can apply to Daenerys Targaryen, our most famed Targaryen, this idea of like, what if you destroy the thing you're trying to save? Like, what if in the attempt to placate everyone, um, you know, as perfectly encapsulated by his inability to make one strong, you know, killing blow, but just sort of half measure his way through the death of this of this stag. He torments the stag. We hear this awful sound out of the stag. And it's just sort of like, you know, you're trying, you're trying to protect the realm. You're trying to save your line. But in your in your wishy-washy, indecision way, you're actually damaging the thing you're trying to save. And I think about tar- uh, Daenerys just setting a torch to King's Landing, which is like, you're the savior of the small people. Is that what you're trying to do as you roast them alive with your dragon flame? Like, what's going on here? So it's tough. Tough look. It's a great point. And also, like, I personally would prefer to not um, measure strength and worth by slaying a beautiful creature in the woods. Absolutely not. We know that that is what is on the minds of all those people gathered there. And to go in that moment from you will be the beneficiary of this great godly symbol to everybody like what's going on here? Is he going to need a, a second stroke and instructions for a little, a little to the left from the huntsman to actually make this happen? And that ties in more broadly to the way that Otto doesn't want anybody to know about the rotting flesh or the back source and this constant question mm. of don't give them a reason to doubt you even for a second. Well, right. What is everybody who's standing there going to think after that? And then, of course, we contrast that with the fact that the white heart does in fact appear just not for Viserys and not for Aegon. It appears for Rhaenyra, this gorgeous sequence where Rhaenyra and Kristen are up on this cresting hill and the camera pans and their heads turn and there it is. Quiet, majestic, magnificent, just looking at her, breathing. It is this, there's this really quiet and calm and peace in that sequence, such a contrast to the hustle and bustle and violence, even though she's covered in blood, of the hunt down below. And there's the significance of the stag appearing for her and what that signals in an episode spent harping on and focusing on what that would signify that she has been chosen. But then there's also the significance of her decision because Kristen goes to draw his blade and she stops him and she lets that stag go. What did you make of that decision? So we got several great emails about this, comparing this to this really, really incredible scene from the 2006 film, The Queen, where Helen Mirren, who plays Queen Elizabeth, experiences something similar where she sees a stag, she stays the hunters, and she lets the stag go. It's the scene that basically won Helen Mirren her Oscar for that film. Um, And what's true about that scene in that film, and that really helped me unlock how I'm understanding this scene, is in that film, there's like kind of a few interpretations of that moment. This is Queen Elizabeth recognizing this is the, the plot of the queen is about Queen Elizabeth trying to come to terms with the death of Princess Diana and the whole movie. She's sort of like has no empathy for Diana. And she's like, so what? She shunned us. Why am I supposed to care? All this sort of stuff. And then she sees a stag and sort of like in this moment, 
is she seeing in the stag the hounded, hunted, and pursued Princess Diana? And it is in this moment in her empathy for, for this stag, is she having empathy for Princess Diana? Similarly, another great interpretation is in this moment as she sees the stag, is she seeing herself hounded by people who want her response to the death of Princess Diana? They're demanding a quote from her. They're demanding a speech from her. And she's like, what, you know, what is going on? The screenwriter for the film, Peter Morgan, who went on to make The Crown, um, said, it sort of dawned on me as a metaphor, really, when I learned that a stag that has 14 points is a stag that should generally already have been culled. It is something that has somehow escaped capture. It resonated for me. You know, I feel pretty much the same way about our monarchy. I feel like for some reason they've managed to get away with it. They've survived perhaps longer than one of them have expected. The creature has a perennial ability. And then like this idea of the white stag in Arthurian legend, the creature has a perennial ability to evade capture and that the pursuit of the animal is mankind's spiritual quest. So there's so much richness here for Rhaenyra. It's not just that Rhaenyra we hear at the beginning of the episode does not really love a hunt, doesn't love the sound of boar. She sounds like screaming children, spares a shitty look for her shitty brother in that moment, et cetera. Um, but it's like, is she seeing herself in the stag, this this girl who is being hounded and pursued uh, with many a suitor, including Jason Lannister? She's like, let's let the stag go. She is, she is hounded. She's pursued. Let us let her have some peace after all, you know, um, which I think is really beautiful because I couldn't really make it work as a, as a symbol for the realm, but as a symbol of her understanding herself better. I really liked it, especially if it comes post baptism of blood. Yeah. This is a I moment she's that. had her transformation. She's gotten her rage out. So what, what is she processing here and now empathy for herself, empathy for her situation? Yeah. I love that. And I think also like we heard Viserys refer to her elsewhere in the episode as a heedless contrarian. And he means it as a dig there, but there's an aspect of that that is at the core of Rhaenyra's strength and, and, and what makes her so worthy of our affection and investment. Like she is a truly different thinker from a lot of the other people in the realm. And I like thinking of like how few characters would possess the restraint to make the decision that she made there. So many other people in that situation would say, this is my moment. This is the thing, the pelts that I can, the horns that I can, the antlers I can bring back and say, you doubted me. Here it is, proof that I am the worthy one. And that's not the choice she makes because she doesn't want to play their games because playing their games means that she has to play in their pool and that's not the way that she wants to live her life. And I, I I thought that this was like an incredibly powerful visual and sequence. It was one of my favorite parts of the episode. Loved it. Me too. Speaking of favorite parts of the episode, Joe, it's time to make the eight with our rapid episode awards. Hell yeah. Incredible episode for our first award, Wig Watch. So many choices. <laughs> best and worst wig. Take it away. Okay, my best is actually going to Rhaenyra and Damon as a tie for the blood and the hair. And I think that's a really good use of the blonde wig is to like how starkly the blood stands out in the blonde. So. Really does. 
For blood it makes blonde. me think of those commercials yeah. where like a cat knocks a, a pot of tomato sauce onto white carpet or something like that. It makes me think of one of the greatest uh, comedies of this or any other era, gr- Game Night, which involves the blood best. absolutely the everywhere. Best. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What's, what's, what's your best wing, Mallory Rubin? Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, I am going with Break Bones' Man Bun, which I fucking loved <laughs> fantastic fantastic work i think that that's i think that's us the guy's actual hair though but but i will i will give it to you best i hair. was gonna um, ask you if it's eligible for a wig watch i tried to do some googling to see if it was his his actual hair or a wig and i, I think it be is sure, but, but I'm, I'm going with it anyway. I'll, I'll accept it worse for me is jason fucking lannister we're not giving it to targaryen this week we're giving it to a lannister and here's the deal i think they were trying really hard to distinguish because the same actor is playing thailand and Jason Lannister, they're really trying to let not only the performance, but the wig do a lot of work. But that was not it. That was not my favorite wig that I've ever seen. No. How about you, Mallory? I'm sorry to do this. I don't want to hurt you. I am going with Damon's war wig, which <laughs> I found <laughs> deeply distressing. <laughs> we have questions for what his hair tie is made of. That was something that Mallory and I were wondering. <laughs> He's got like a black, like a goodies, you could get it at Rite Aid hair tie in his hair. What is that made of? Like a, a, a sinew that Caraxes lent him, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> a great question. Oh, my God. All right. Fit watch. Best and worst fit. Some amazing fits in this episode. I think Coralise looks resplendent That's in his armor. Pick. I love that. Yeah. I'm going with Samwell, the singer. <laughs> <laughs> I loved this. Great. Um, worst. So Corley's has a lot of like he's got rock in the seahorse sigil, as is as you should when you're wearing armor. Otto has a big old tower, like embroidered on the front of his tunic that I thought looked really dumb for a hunt. You're not in battle, sir. We all know your house high tower. You don't need to wear the the shirt of the band that you're going to see. Like, yeah, auto worse. I mean, as you? you know, I love merch. Yeah. So it's maybe just a passion that I share with house high tower. <laughs> <laughs> um, you gonna get a high tower jersey? Okay. I, I just, yeah, don't roll it out. I, I'm not sure if I can allow myself to buy more Game of Thrones shirts. I just have so many. <laughs> and yet, will anything stop me? Probably not. For worst, I'm going with the crab feeders, harpy mask, head straps. Now, yes, we've talked about the mask before. It wasn't new in this episode. What was new was the numerous lingering camera shots of him turning his head and showing us the way the straps were wedging under and into the grayscale flakes. It was... Absolutely revolting. So that's the worst for me. Won't miss seeing that. Next. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got bigger and bigger. Best bit of dragon dung. It's, it's the soul patch on sea smoke, and you will not convince me otherwise. It's a great pick, but I'm going to try to convince you otherwise <laughs> Good with luck. my pick. To me, it is without question hearing that poor 
fucker who had been staked to the driftwood. Save me, my prince. Save him. Save me. Yeah, my prince. Save me. And then Caraxes landing and (laughs) stomping him into goo. (laughs) That was like an all-time Thrones death up there with the soldiers taking a piss and then getting mauled by Greywind. This was this was just remarkable. Yes, stuff. my prince, save me. Number four. Uh, yeah. The doctrine of exceptionally weird sex stuff. It's Anything on pretty, the sex, or we could just broaden this to relationships. It's a pretty Courtship. sexist episode, but let's just. Oh, you, you want to put the baby in here, don't you? Um, it's 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 <laughs> difficult for me not to pick the boy just turned to auto. Yes, for me, <laughs> it is the sound of Kristen Cole unsheathing his sword in the firelight and Rhaenyra's face in reaction to it. Too That's many. my. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. I'll channel my best Tywin Lannister here. I respect that. (laughs) Number five. Mm. If the show had Netflix subtitles. This is in honor of our dearly departed crab feeder. It is the innards drag stickily. Oh, my God. We picked the same thing again. (laughs) What did you do? What did you do? Amazing pattern that has developed on House of R. (laughs) I went with. Crab feeder intestines slosh saltily. Oh, slosh saltily <laughs> or dragstically. So mine is the drag leading up to, yeah. and then yours is the yeah, moment in, really, in the surf. Paired. There's some, mm. there's some nice it. sequencing here. <laughs> Archmaster Ebros could never. Best quote. I'm going to give it to Jason Lannister, <laughs> who said, It's been said. That if one were to stand in the tower on a perfect day, one could see clear across the Sunset Sea, which is real Sarah Palin. I can see Russia from my house. (laughs) Energy from Jason Lannister. What's west of Lannisport? Let's find out. Oh, my God. I love this. How many burners do you think Jason Lannister has to leave five star (laughs) Yelp reviews for Casterly Rock? (laughs) So many. More so numbers than, than more than uh, Kristen Cole has oh useful designations. Yeah. My pick is also about it's Jason Lannister adjacent. It is a Rhaenyra Viserys exchange where Rhaenyra says he's arrogant and self serious. And Viserys says, well, I, I thought this. you might have that in common. <laughs> oh Iconic God. dad move. Iconic <laughs> dad moment. I loved it. Unbelievable. I, w- I was on Viserys' la- side in that. It was oh my God. too good of a burn. It's too good of a burn. Absolutely sick burn right there. Number seven. I gathered that from all the lions. <laughs> Most exciting new character arrival. You know my answer. It's Laris. It's Laris. It's the, it's the biscuit nibbler phrasing himself. <laughs> Larry Strong. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it has to be Laris. Say the Is it Laris for you too? I, I have to say the Strong Brothers. But okay. If you made me pick, we, all, yeah. we all know you're Team Harwin. I get it. I get it. All right. I mean, break bones. It's just unbelievable. Sea smoke and break bones in the same episode. Two of the best names in the canon. So, someone like on Twitter them. called someone on Twitter called Laris the break biscuits. <laughs> Oh my god. 
I love it. All right. I ask your favorite. Who won the episode? Yeah. Unfortunately, I have a tie. Okay. And it's this. Actor-wise. Okay. It's Patty. It's Patty by a mile. For sure. Yeah. Incredible Patty episode. Character-wise, it's Allison Hightower. That's my pick, too. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, th- exactly. Yes. Has to be. Politicking from the rear. Allison <laughs> Hightower. <laughs> oh my god uh, that's not what I meant alright faceless yep. man watch faceless <laughs> I'm so happy oh Steve god. is here in spirit oh my god who's your pick for this episode Who's a faceless man in this episode? This epi- this answer brought to you by me watching The House of the Dragon Built uh, Making of. It is the boar himself. Oh. And if you watch the making of, this was it's wild. just a guy in a blue suit. It looks incredible. His his like blue spandex clad butt just turns into the butt of the boar seamlessly. It's so good. Um, the boar. Pick. I love it. If I were an assassin in Westeros trying to kill Princess Rhaenyra, I'd transform myself into a boar. <laughs> I love it. Great pick. Uh, didn't work out very well for that face nope. man in that in that case. I wonder if that'll change the taste of the the meal that they all enjoy at their next <laughs> feast. <laughs> I also wonder, like, if faces man were like, okay, no more transmogrifying, just faces only now. Didn't work out for boar guy. All right, what's your pick, Mallory? <laughs> I'm going with Lady Redwine, you know, for the reasons already discussed. I was told that we never jested about cake. Now we're jesting about cake. It puts me on my guard. I start to doubt. It gets suspicious. Pug here. Cute What's little puppy. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet little pug. Okay. Joe, it is time for our book. Spoiler. Look ahead. If you do not want to hear about future fire and blood events, bounce. It's been a joy to spend this time with you. If you want to hear, stick around because it's time. For a dance of dragon dreams. There's a lot to talk about. There's, There's a so lot much. we could talk about. There's a lot we will talk about. Let's just start with the with the strongs again. Because <laughs> this is a we 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 love the strongs. I love how you came in so hot on trial uh trial. Chris uh, was literally nope, like, I don't know. Do you're, you're, I don't know you came in so about. I love how you came in so hot on Talk of Thrones because like <laughs> it's uh I was trying to remember the name of the five Game of Thrones podcasts that I do. Um you're like more like break the bed. And I was like, Mallory is anyway. Well, you know, he's uh he's handsome. So it's handsome. Also, now that we're in our our, our book section, we can say uh, he is the widely believed to be the father of Rhaenyra's three. He and Rhaenyra are gonna have sons with of- Blador, Valerian. So that's Sorry. a thing that's coming. Yep. Speaking of strongs, my favorite strong is going to become master of whispers in the future. Uh, also, widely suspected of possibly killing his father and his brother in the Harrenhal fire. So this so- is tough. Yeah, this is tough. <laughs> this is actually pretty high on my list of things I'm ex- really eager to get the actual answer to. Right. Because there are so many different possibilities. Was it Laris? Was it Damon? Was it Corliss? Is it the curse of Harrenhal? We're going to find out on this year television show. What a treat. Can't wait. Who I don't want to say goodbye to Harrenhal so soon, though. <laughs> so I feel like, I don't know. Good news for me. Together. 
good news for me. Laris is here for the duration. It's true. And a, a change in station, presumably right around the bend in Showland for Pops, for Lionel, right? And I love this, that that we see him, um, like, giving such good advice a couple episodes in a row. It really puts him in a good position to be Hand of the King. So, for a little while. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Speaking of future hands, yeah. the Lannisters. Tylen. It's around and for Jason. the long haul here. Yeah, and Jason. Tylen will be... Aegon II's master of coin and eventually Aegon III's hand. And master of coin, the fact that he's in that station at a moment of real consequence in the story actually has like huge bearing on the events to come because when he seizes the royal treasury, that is a moment of supreme import. And they are aligned with the Greens. So that's a big deal. And he like sends it to the four corners of the Westeros. It's a brilliant move. But yeah, like you said, like her rejection of Jason here. Uh, Rhaenyra's rejection of Jason sets up House Lannister to be. And you see Allison is in good standing with House Lannister. Like, Rhaenyra pisses off the ladies. Allison making nice of them all afternoon. So, and 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 this Lannister, Kira Lannister, is the head of House Lannister right now, I think is the idea. Or maybe Jason is, but either way, they're... It influences. Uh, Rhaenyra's marriage... Can I read the part of the quote that I stopped short of, of reading in our main section yes. earlier from the book about all the different proposals? The next sentence is, Queen Alicent had her own candidate, her eldest son, Prince Aegon. Rhaenyra's half-brother, but Aegon was a boy, the princess 10 years his elder. Moreover, the two half-siblings had never gotten on well. All the more reason to bind them together in marriage, the queen argued. Viserys did not agree. The boy is Alicent's own blood, he told Lord Strong. She wants him on the throne. It's a choice to not have it play out this way yet on the show. Meanwhile, she does marry Lainor. So Lionel Strong comes in with the correct answer. Yeah. Lainor Valarian. However, as I mentioned, who did we meet at the battle? Not really, but he's there. Joffrey of Lonmouth. Lonmouth. I don't know how you pronounce it. I'm saying Lonmouth. Uh, who is Lainor's boyfriend? Because if you haven't read the books, you should know that Lainor prefers gentlemen. And the Knight of Kisses is uh, his preferred gentleman. So the boyfriends who fight in the Stepstones together stay together even when you marry the heir to the realm. Rhaenyra's uh, read on the prospective match in Fire and Blood is, the princess knew much and more about Laenor Valerian and had no wish to be his bride. My half-brothers would be more to his taste, she told the king. Speaking of House Valerian dynamics. Yes. Vaymond. Vaymond's future betrayal of Corlys. Because when Corlys gets sick, Vaymond, who again was introduced here as a younger brother rather than uh, another member of the family, sort of makes moves to take over because, uh, as will be very clear, I think, in the show, given the sort of racial makeup of the various players, Rhaenyra's children are not Valarian children. So he's like, why would I let them take over her house, Valarian, if they're not Valarian children? So his mute, his sort of mutiny is seeded pretty well here, I think. Doesn't go super, super well for him. But yeah, it was <laughs> but, <laughs> good, you know. good table setter in this intro. Yeah. What about in terms of the matter of succession? Viserys has pledged her in era. I think 
It's been fascinating, unsurprisingly, to see how many show watchers, Chris even said it on Talk the Thrones, are I like, know. <laughs> no way this holds. That's the kind of thing that you say if it's definitely not going to be the case. And it's just so fascinating because Viserys is going to remain steadfast. Whatever we can say about Viserys, we know that he does not go back on this promise that he makes to Rhaenyra here. In fact, like, adamant, dogged, in the face of, like, clear infidelity on her part. Well, not infidelity. I think it's an an arrangement she has with Lenore. But, like, clear children that are not her own. He's like, what do you mean? Of course they are. But Sarah's, uh, I want to talk really oh, quickly God. about the, the accuracy of his prophecy. Because what does he say in this episode? He says, I saw it in a dream as vivid as these flames. I saw it, a male babe born to me wearing the conqueror's crown. And what's so interesting about the crown situation is that when he dies, someone loyal to Rhaenyra takes his crown, Jaehaerys' crown, his Viserys' crown, to Rhaenyra over Dragonstone. So what does Aegon wind up wearing? The Conqueror's crown, the crown of rubies. Like, so the pro- he, what he saw is real. Right. A male issue, of, you know, of his line sitting on the throne wearing the Conqueror's crown. It's going to happen. Egg two. So you were egg. a dreamer, Fucking Viserys. Egg two. I know. <laughs> you did it, You were bud. right, buddy. <laughs> should, we, should we chat for a second about Otto's impending ouster as hand because I thought this episode did a good job of starting to establish a little bit of tension brewing between Viserys and Otto. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is, I mean, this definitely like, we don't know exactly what the cause will be uh, that will send him packing, but if he continues to press this agenda, doesn't seem like it's going over very well. With Viserys. Right. So there's a here's a passage from Fire and Blood. Still, questions persisted, not the least from Queen Alicent herself. Loudest amongst her supporters was her father, Sir Otto Hightower, Hand of the King. Pushed too far on the matter in 109 AC, Viserys stripped Sir Otto of his chain of office and named in his place Tastern Lord of Harrenhal, Lionel Strong. This hand will not hector me his grace proclaimed. <laughs> I love I love looking at that quote now because we've actually heard Viserys say who is he to Hector me before just about Mm. other characters. So like, I'm waiting for him to say exactly that. It's going to be really fun. That's great. Allison's pregnancy. Yeah. So this is, she's pregnant. Aegon's two here, pregnant with, with baby number two, Helena, Helena. What do we think? I think Helena, Helena. Okay. Mm -hmm. Who will, you know, they're the, they're the Targs wind up marrying Aegon. So if anyone was Don't worry. Worried. Wait, wait. Don't worry. If Yeah, if you thought Aegon wasn't going to marry his sister, he will. It's fine. <laughs> It'll just be his full sister instead of his half-sister. Yeah, it's Even fine. better for the Targs. His and younger sister. It's fine. God, this fucking family. She, she ends up riding Dreamfire. So that's fun. Hyped about that. Uh, top three dragon name for you. I want to talk about Allison. Allison for a second here. Do it. Me. Please. Okay. I want to read this line that I think is so important from Fire and Blood in terms of what we've been talking about, about who writes this story, who gets to tell this story. Here's how they, here's how the book sums up the rift between Allison and Rhaenyra. Okay. The amity between her grace and her stepdaughter had proved short-lived for both Rhaenyra and Allison aspired to be the first lady of the realm. Wildly inaccurate of the situation we're, we're seeing here. I think it's a, like a a bullshit, myopic, dumb, probably sexist view of what's like both of them wanted to be the most important lady. Like, yeah, if you want to 
shout out Samwell of the Bard <laughs> under the Godswood as as like one of our sources here. And we can see what Rhaenyra saying the princess commands you and the queen commands you. Like that's a concept. But that's not what's it's not each aspire to be the first lady of the realm is not what's going on here. And this is why I want to read part two of Michael's the email about Allison that I thought was so interesting. Michael writes, uh, in continuation of this idea that Allison has never gotten to make a decision for herself or be allowed to think about what she wants. Michael writes, so I see Allison's arc as not so much one of ambition or even desperation, but of agency suddenly and painfully acquired. I know I'll be paying attention to all the ways big and small in which Allison's life and wants are proven to not to be her own because there will come a point in this tale where she is finally able to ask herself what she wants. And whatever the answer is, she will, for the first time, be empowered to take it. I don't think the answer Allison comes to will be a good one. Presumably, this is still the green queen we all love to hate from fire and blood. But I do think it's an illuminating and important arc that is much more nuanced than girl becomes power hungry or girl is a secret schemer that some seem to think it is. What do you do when you've never had the keys to your own life and suddenly you're in the driver's seat? I think a lot of people to some degree or another, eventually have to answer that question. And when we get that moment from the trailer when Renice asks Allison, like, haven't you ever thought about yourself on the other? You know, it's just sort of like, I love this idea. It's really been bothering me, this idea that, like, the way that some people are characterizing Allison as, like, sly. She is subtle, but I would not say she's sly yet. I genuinely believe at this point in her story, she is still wholeheartedly backing Rhaenyra. I genuinely believe that. So we'll see. We'll see how long that lasts. But I do (laughs) believe that's where she is right now. Mm, I love that. We got another email uh, from Christopher about the little little dragon that Egg 2 is playing with. And Christopher says, I'm wondering if you either of you noticed that the toy dragon little Aegon was holding looked like a miniature version of Maylis. And like Egg 2 is responsible for bringing down Maylis. I'm not sure that since we haven't seen Maylis yet, I'm not ready to call it that. But I, you know, I was wondering wondering if you had thoughts about like what that dragon toy was meant to convey. I just assume all the Targ babies get little dragon toys and they're constantly being raised and nurtured to to think about the fact that they need to become dragon riders one day. But I like that as a little Easter egg. It's a fun idea. When we see Maylis for the first time, we'll do a little side-by-side comparison yeah, with the dragon toy. It. See how that I'm always out. down yeah. for an Easter egg. Much like when Rhaenyra talked about people feasting on her bones, I was like, here's a nice setup for what happens <laughs> with Dreamfire. <laughs> Too much. Oh, wait, can, we, <laughs> can we skip to Kristen Cole really quickly? <laughs> Please. I'm always happy to chat about Kristen Cole. You already mentioned it in the non-book reader section when he says immediately, do you want me to kill him? Ha ha, just joking. I'm like, fuck, this dude is so scary. I know. It was, there was so, I mean, we've had, we've talked about him in the book reader section of every episode so far. And I think that's notable. Like they're really laying the track for what is to come here and, and what a, what a seismic role he has to play. When she said, tell me something, Sir Kristen, do you think the realm will ever accept me as their queen? And he says, they'll have no choice but to princess. It's like, Sad. Really rooting for those two. Yes, really hot psycho coming up. Kristen Cole. Oh my god. Um, speaking of hot psychos. Oh, I was. (laughs) 
was going to go to Damon. Uh, well, I do want to talk about Viserys' missing fingers. Let's talk about the missing fingers, yeah. Just for a hot second. This is an unforgivable omission. I'm I'm sorry. Okay. Tell right? me. Tell, tell, tell the listeners what the drama is in Fire and well, Blood over the for, missing so fingers. So I actually... I have a question, I guess, because this is really like a late stage thing for Viserys and Fire and Blood where the the cut to the bone, the fever setting in, the, the, the near death experience as this wound is festering, the arguments about treatment, it becomes this political thing, like the future health and viability of this man's digits and actual life. He never sits on the Iron Throne again after that. And like, that's just not how this is playing out at all. So I I wonder, or is something else, like is an equivalent injury or ailment going to occur? It has to, right? It feels too juicy to leave alone because the idea yeah. is that like Allison's like, our maester says it's fine. And Rhaenyra's like, I'm bringing my maester to come right. look at my dad because yeah. I don't think your maester is doing his job. We already got this set up with Maester Melos. Uh, you know, in, I mean, not only the maggot thing, but in the very first episode when Maester Melos is like looking at the pus and he's like, eh, and the younger Maester's like, should we cauterize it? Like, what do you, I don't know why I just said that word that way, but like, should, <laughs> it's very, I think it's very Maryland of me. Should, should we, should we cauterize it? And he's like, oh, uh, I guess we should. And I think the idea, as far as I remember in the book, is that Allison brings a younger Maester in to be like, can you help my dad? This this old fart doesn't know what he's doing. And it it sets up a very like, my is my stepmom trying to kill my dad sort of dynamic between Allison and and Renera. So I feel like that still has to happen and that we wouldn't have gotten the back wound and, and finger cut if that wasn't gonna hundred percent become relevant in some way. So I'm going with this is fine. The fingers are just gone. I love the way Riley and his column was like. Did the maggots not work or did they work too well? Like the idea that they just <laughs> gnawed away. Are you saying the maggots dug too greedily and too deep oh into Viserys' flesh? Yeah, and then um, a Balrog popped out of his hand. Um, shout out to uh, Star Wars fan George R. R. Martin for his weird hand stuff, be it Davos or Jamie or uh, Viserys' fingers. I love his hand stuff. Oh my God. All right. Well, I can't wait to see what body part the king loses next to uh okay. to, to cause all or slices <laughs> stay, next to cause all of this. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> Damon. This was just shown in the teaser for next episode that he comes back styled King of the Stepstones in the Narrow Sea. We will presumably learn also next week that Corliss crowns him. What do you, I was I guess I was a little surprised that they showed that, but also maybe not because they showed in the last teaser that Aegon was a character now. So I don't know. They're putting a lot in those. That's fine. That's fun. King Damon, uh, follow question. You ready? Follow, yeah, follow question. Do you think blood is so hard to get out of bleach hair, and that's why he cuts it all off? Like, why does he cut all his hair off? L- literally, yes. I, what <laughs> other What other explanation is there? Unless it's just like get, I need a change. Get lice. Is he worried he got some grayscale in his hair and he got to cut it off? Like, oh, I don't, I have questions. That's a, that's a great one. The crab feeder purge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's go with that. Um, speaking of the crab feeder and the triarchy, like, uh, pains me to say, you know, we're not done with the stepstones or the triarchy. I, I mean, we weren't Maybe. certainly in, in Fire and Blood. Maybe we will be in the show. That was my question for you. Do you think that even though the crab feeder's gone, peace out, Kragus, we, we, 
hardly knew you. Will we get the ensuing Dorn involvement as the conflict in the Stepstones continues? Do you think that'll happen on the show? I think more likely it's the second idea that like Otto will use the triarchies amity with Damon and Corliss because Otto gets the triarchy to sort of join the Hightower side of the fight. I don't think we've said the word triarchy this many times on the show to not bring them back again for something, you know? Yeah, I like I, I like the auto idea too. Dear it, would God. Be, it would be interesting to try to incorporate Dorn in that way, but I, I, I would I love think it. The, yeah, I think the I think the auto guesses. He's Dornish. <laughs> God, they're all Dornish. Oh my God. Um, did you want to very briefly mention anything else we glimpsed from the next time on? I just want to zip through this giant revelation in the next time on Speaking trailer, of which is shocking that thought- things to put in the teaser <laughs> for the next episode. I was like, what? That the prophecy is literally written on the dagger. Maybe that answers some of our how does it get passed down questions, or maybe it so. gives me more questions. But it seems like, and we alluded this to this in an earlier book section, be, just because they talked about it in one of the behind the scenes, and we were like, what exactly does that mean? It seems like literally the prophecy is written on a dagger. You like plunge into the fire. It's like invisible ink. You plunge into the fire, and the prophecy is revealed on the dagger. It's like you're tossing the one ring into the fire. I love it. Uh, uh, also, there's this whole drama. Something's happening with Rhaenyra. And I think from context clues for book readers, we see her dressed as like a young boy, sort of sneaking out of the keep. And we also see Damon sort of in a cloak. And we know in the books that Damon would smuggle, according to some sources, that Damon would <laughs> smuggle Rhaenyra out of the palace dressed as a boy and go visit the streets of Silk as part of her sexual education that he was yeah. part of. To learn the, quote, womanly arts. Yeah. 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 So, it's, I, listen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a story boy. of Targaryens. This is what you signed up for. Welcome to House of the Dragon. Well, you've been waiting to do your tale of the tape, which unreliable narrator is, is most accurate, and that's a big one. For, it's coming, li- it's coming yeah. literally. Yeah. <laughs> Damn me. <laughs> yeah, there it oh is. Oh my God. Could there be a more fitting end note? I think not. <laughs> oh boy. All right. Allison said that none of it needs be this way in truth. And yet the conclusion of today's podcast has arrived all the same. Thank you to our dragon lords. Carlos Chiraboga for subbing in today for Steve as the producer of this episode. Thank you, Carlos. Arjun Ramgopal for his additional production work on this episode. And Jomia Deneron for his work on the social for this episode. Remember to send us your emails at hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com. We will see you on Friday for our Rings of Power episode three deep dive. And then again on Sunday night, immediately after House of the Dragon episode four for Talk of Thrones. Until then, it's as if the seven themselves have blessed this pod. Thank you.